in this battle royale, you can be, I keep calling it battle royale because that's what things are actually called, but in wrestling, it is battle royale. Yes. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling series by series. I'm your host, fully vaccinated Bob Moore, and I'm joined in person by fully vaccinated Alec Pridgen. Good to see you, but nothing to stare at my screen while I talk to you. It's a different experience. It's a little bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. We are recording again in person for the first time in over a year, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh my gosh, it's like, I, I, I'll be honest, I actually cried a little on the way over here, just uh-huh. like the the fact that we're able to do this again. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. And um, if anyone has been having doubts about, you know, getting the shots and everything, this is what it allows is us coming back to something normal. Exactly, again. yeah. The goal is to get past all this. Yeah. So, um... Let's go to the ring is 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 back in person, and we're hoping to stay this way. Mm-hmm. And we hope that all of you will also uh, do what you need to do to get back to your regular lives, and so we can finally get past this thing and back to normal. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you don't take care of yourself, who's going to take care of you? Yeah, <sighs> feels good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree. Tonight, we're taking a look at Slamboree 1998. The strong survive. The Ruthless Win. Slamboree 98 was held on May 17, 1998, at the Centrum in Worcester, Massachusetts, in front of 11,592 fans, recorded as sold out, as were 11 of the 12 WCW pay per views in 1998, the lone exception being Road Wild. Wow. Did a pretty good year. Obviously, it'd be hard to sell at Road Wild, given all things about that show. <laughs> yes. Which we'll cover when we ever get to that terrible show. Slamboree 1998 also earned 250,000 pay-per-view buys. That's good pay-per-view numbers there, but it's actually towards the lower end of the 1998 scale. Really? Six out of the 12 pay-per-views in 1998 will meet or exceed 300,000 buys. Wow. With two of them, Starcade's 450,000 and Bash at the Beach's 525,000, reaching particularly notable heights. Because obviously, as we covered back when we did Starcade 1997, that's like, that basically, that's the peak for them as a Their biggest show ever, yeah. That's like, what, 650,000? I believe it's around there, yeah. Something like that, yeah. They don't get that close to that again, obviously. No, but they do still have a very good year in 1998. In fact, none of the shows in 1998 go lower than 200,000 buys. Well, that's good then, yeah. So it's a very good year for WCW in terms of viewership. But are all those eyes there attracting seeing a good show? Mm. To find out, let's go to the ring. So basically what's been going on is there's been splintering in NWO Mostly involves the world title, which has gone on a couple people at this point, most notably Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan, who have their own history, as anyone knows wrestling will tell you. <laughs> All of this has led to a splintering of the group in the recent weeks building up to this show, the point where Kevin Nash, as well as Randy Savage, 
formed a splinter group called the Wolf Pack, which would slowly gain new members through the typical individual reveal, which is someone walking out and revealing their shirt. I, I've, I've heard you're not supposed to turn your back on them. I've heard that as well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what will happen to you, but I don't think it's good. <laughs> so bear in mind that there's going to be a lot of changes in flux with the groups over the coming months, so I'm not getting ahead of where we're at. So I'm just giving you an idea where we're at currently with the groups. So currently, NWO Hollywood, the main faction, is of course headed by now world champion Hulk Hogan, joined by Scott Steiner, the Disciple, a.k.a. former main eventer Ed Leslie. He's back! Yes. <laughs> he, he got really buff and grew a beard, and people didn't notice it was him for a long time, apparently. Ironically, now he's completely unrecognizable, but he's no longer the man with no name. That's true, yeah. <laughs> that is very true. Also, recent rejoiner is the giant. So bizarre. Yes. Hey, you guys caught me a world title, so I should join you. Then you kicked me out because I won the world title. Now I'll just join you anyway. Just feel like it. <laughs> also, of the Flash, Scott Norton. Brian Adams, the wrestler, not the singer. <laughs> I have to mention that because there are non wrestlers that do join the NWO during this time period. Yes, yes. You also have Vincent, who has his whole history of being named as a, despite other people. Yes. This being one of them. And, of course, we have the leader, uh, at least as far as the uh, executive side of it is, which is Eric Bischoff. Right. Spending off from the, from the interview, we, have, of course, have mentioned the interview Wolfpack, led by Kevin Nash. We have Scott Hall, who's turning for the first time in quite a while on this show. Mm-hmm. We have Randy Savage, as mentioned. We have Conan, whose defection, I won't repeat what he said, but it led to some very bad statement by Hogan. Okay. Mind you, in character, so it's not like a personal thing. Joking in character about how he could go somewhere and pick up 100 people to replace Conan, if you can infer okay. what that means. Yeah, this is what's gotcha. in that. Uh, not that he does a whole lot or appears much on shows, but they still have Rick Rude, as well as Miss Elizabeth. We have other recent joiner, Kurt Hennig. And, of course, one of the weirder people to join the NWO, Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, that was strange. It's important to note, just for the overall feel of everything, is that NWO Hollywood is still a heel group, and they act like that and are supposed to be treated as such. However, the Wolfpack is, at very least, a burgeoning face group, by doing nothing to actually change. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it starts out at least at a power struggle, Yes, more than anything else, but... They do slowly, I think, over the years, start to give them a few reasons to be treated more as faces, or at least to be sympathetic, Yeah, if not actual good guys. It's the case of people still cheering some of the wrestlers because of who they are and not because what they do. Right. And they sort of lean into it with the wolf pack by having a split faction. Like right, yeah. But ultimately, they don't really act like faces. No, no, not really. <laughs> so it's kind of questionable. We open with a video package set to dramatic music. Words flash on the screen alongside images of wrestlers. Controversy for Bret Hart. Power for Randy Savage. Outrage for Sting. Controversy, again, mm-hmm. for the Giant. Got, got a little lazy there. <laughs> yeah. It's bigger controversy because he's much larger. Yeah, the, yeah, that is true. Yeah. Buildings get wrecked as we see shots of Bret Hart clubbing Randy Savage with a world title and Giant clubbing Kevin Nash with his arm because Giant don't need no title belt to hurt you. (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) Oddly, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, Sting and Giant's actual opponents in their match tonight, don't get call-outs. Huh. 
That's weird. Yeah. So it's a cool tone to this one, actually, but it's a bit of a confusing package. It makes it look like Sting and the Giant are facing Savage and Hart, yeah. which is not what's happening. No, it is not. <laughs> the Slampery logo comes up, and host Tony Schiavone brags about the sold-out crowd to the same dramatic music as sparklers light up the stage. The design's kind of simple this year, just the big Slampery logo in the center of the stage, but it looks nice, and in a cool touch, the door that people are going to enter through is actually hidden inside the logo yeah i like that one yeah that was that was pretty cool i thought i did it's like almost unnoticeable right until it actually opens which was really cool yeah absolutely we go to the commentary desk and tony introduces co-host iron mike Tanay and bobby the brain heenan he builds up bret hart versus randy savage refereed by rowdy roddy piper and the factional power struggle between nwo hollywood and NWO Wolfpack. Tanay builds up Hart's involvement in helping Hogan regain the world title. Just as a reminder, Hart was introduced to WCW back around Starcade 1997, about half a year ago, mm-hmm. by making sure Hogan lost the title. Yes, correct. That sure was a fast turnaround. <laughs> yeah, right. Tony notes that Scott Hall hasn't yet shown up, but the Nash is here. He builds up Sting's upcoming decision. Giant has just joined the NWO and wants Sting to join, too, if they win the titles. Heenan notes that Giant handed Sting an NWO t-shirt, and Sting did not throw it away. Mm. Tony talks about Eric Bischoff challenging WWE owner Vince McMahon. (sighs) Yeah, we'll get to that. And we actually throw to footage of Bischoff on Thunder, reading aloud a cease and desist letter from the WWE's attorney. (laughs) I'm sure all of you were watching Nitro Monday when when I issued the challenge to Vince McMahon. After all, you see, Vince McMahon has been sending his people everywhere he knows that I'm not. As a matter of fact, just a little while ago, I got a letter from his attorney. And here's Mr. McMahon's response. Where do you get a load of this? Mr. McMahon will not be appearing at WCW's pay-per-view. You have no authority to even suggest he will do so. Even though I don't think you've got the guts, and even though your attorney is saying you're not going to be there, the invitation is still open. At 3 o'clock, Doug Dillinger, our head of security, will be outside and will escort you to your dressing room should you change your mind. Up to you, Vinnie Mac. Hope to see you there. Bischoff actually does what I think is a pretty good impersonation of Vince himself while reading the letter. And he has some wonderful dad glasses. Oh, yeah, yeah. But this is catastrophically stupid. There's blatantly no way that the owner of the WWE is ever going to come fight Eric Bischoff, at least not before Vince, you know, bought WCW. He's certainly <laughs> not going to do it on their show. Right, exactly. I think I wrote something where there was like a split show, which was interesting at the time. Yeah. That could happen, but not, no. <laughs> they will spend an astonishing amount of time on this tonight, and it's all worthless because there's no possible way the match would ever happen, and literally everyone watching has to already know that. They are literally building to a match that will never happen by saying that it will never happen. Correct. <sighs> yes. <laughs> He literally says it on the Nitro when he makes a challenge. Yes. 
They come back, and Tony says, again, that they don't expect McMahon to show. <laughs> then he throws to footage of poor Doug Dellinger getting stuck going out to talk to fans, mm. saying McMahon's too much of a coward to show. Sadly, Dellinger does not have his Santa beard this year. He doesn't. He does have a nice little goatee, but he does, yeah, it's not yeah. the like awesome Santa beard. Yeah, that's true. Our first match is the Canadian crippler, Chris Benoit, versus Fit Finlay for Finlay's WCW World Television Championship. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. The title scene is thick with competition as the title will be traded between Benoit, Finlay, and Booker T five times in the previous month. Oh, geez. I will explain. Most of these switches were used to draw house show numbers. Mm. Basically, they did a title switch between Booker to Benoit on one show, and the next house show, back to Booker, and then to Benoit again, Booker again. Oh, okay. And because they got back to default, they didn't acknowledge it at all on the shows. <laughs> yeah. They're essentially fandom, but also canonical, if that makes any sense. Weird. Title changes. The big thing here is that two weeks out from this, Finley would win the match against Booker T, winning the title, thanks to Chris Benoit coming out and distracting him, but not actually attacking him. Right. His presence allows for the distraction there. The next Nitro, there'd be a one-on-one match between Booker T and Benoit, decide who would face him on this night. Booker tapped out, so Benoit's here. Benoit comes out first. Sadly, no horseman theme this year. Aw. There is, however, a very strange purple guard pig-faced mascot character dancing in the background as Benoit walks out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like if Alf dressed up as the Macho Man Randy Savage. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's an official mascot. He appears on um, numerous shows. Oh my gosh. It just, it's rare that you actually get him on a shot. Like yeah. If you went to a live show, like on a paper, you would see him, but he is not a huge part of actual television. Yeah. I can understand why. He looks horrible. Yes. <laughs> very strange. Finlay has hard rockin' music, which doesn't really fit with the Shamrock singlet. Not so much. You get a sign in the crowd that says, Fit who? Finlay? Yeah. It's... Ugh. Okay. <laughs> we get a couple other notable signs, too. Sinatra is, was, and always will be NWO, apparently. I don't think that's true. And Goldberg beat them like a baby seal. <laughs> no, really, someone wrote that on a sign. To be fair, baby seals are known for being very violent and attacking other people, so that's what they mean, right? I don't think so. Oh. Hmm. What's the wrong nature documentaries, I guess? The two aggressively shove each other as the crowd chants for Benoit. We get some quick counter-wrestling, and Finley blocks a Benoit roll-up, but Benoit knocks him off balance, and they roll around trading one counts. They trade arm holds, and the crowd lets Finley know he sucks. One, they're wrong. Yes. And two, I hate those chants. Root for the guy you like, not against the guy you don't like. I can see that. Yeah. Some Finley strikes, but a Benoit hip toss that's almost a power slam gets two, as the crowd hurls abuse at Finley, and Tony somewhat ironically chooses that moment to point out signs in the crowd supporting Finley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Benoit wears Finley down with chops, a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker, and a power bomb, as Finley sells exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. Finley takes over with a nasty lariat, and Benoit rolls out, but Finley follows and hits a body slam that's almost a pile driver. Yeah, it's weird. Like, he doesn't rotate him like you normally do. He holds him and almost drops him like a brain buster kind yeah. of move. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Back in, Benoit gets an electric chair drop, 
but Finley's up first and gets two off of a backslide. Tony praises Finley's ability and says he wants to prove he can truly beat Benoit here. Heenan praises his Larry Bird haircut. Yes. It is nice. It's accurate. It is accurate, yes. <laughs> Finley works a headlock and a sleeper, but takes Benoit outside and goes for a chair. Benoit takes it and whacks him with it instead right in front of Patrick. Apparently that's not a DQ now. I made 1998 rules, you know, whatever. Benoit goes in and tries a dive, but Finley scoops up the chair and smacks him in the face in midair. Mm. Jeez. These sorts of spots are hard to watch, particularly retrospectively with Benoit. Yeah, for sure. Finley rolls Benoit in, but takes his time before getting two and a half off a slam. The crowd boos Finley, and he calmly motions in the shape of a title belt, reminding them he's the champion. Nice. Mm-hmm. Benoit hits two out of three rolling German suplexes, but Finley sends him to the ropes on the third. Benoit counters a lariat into the crossface, but Finley makes the ropes. Benoit goes for the swan dive headbutt, but stops to go to confront an approaching Booker T instead. Finley swings through the ropes and kicks Benoit, then rolls him in. Benoit rolls him up for two, but Finley stomps him and hits the tombstone pile driver for the three count and the win. Finley poses with his belt and tells the camera that he's the champ and Benoit's the chump. <laughs> we get replays of the chair shot on the dive, the kick through the ropes, and the tombstone pile driver. Thoughts on this one? That was a really strong match. They did a good job of keeping it competitive, which is nice. These kind of matches, they can be hard to endure if they're really one-sided for me, mm-hmm. personally. Because just a guy you know, being pummel and pummel and pummel, they right. lose interest. They kept the flow going really well here. They showed that they're very even as far as their striking ability, the grappling. What Finley does is Finley shows he's willing to do little extra things, like the swing of the chair through the ropes, as awkward as that spot is, and that buys him the outside. Mm-hmm. It's little extra heelish things that Benoit, who at this point is a face, is not doing. Yeah. I think they mentioned in commentary that they've worked together multiple times. Um, they wrestled in Europe, I believe, at some point. It's one of the things that's definitely apparent when you watch it. It's like from the previous show, or two shows back, excuse me, where Benoit and Rocco Rock have wrestled most of that match together. Right. It's clear they work together and they know how to, how to handle each other. So I like that part of it. They do a good job with the storyline. Booker T, as mentioned, does what Benoit did. He comes out, mm-hmm. creates the distraction. I do like the extra wrinkle of Benoit nearly winning despite of that with the, with the roll-up. Yeah. Another match, they don't have that spot. It's the distraction, hits the tombstone, and wins. So they almost trick you thinking they're not going to repeat the spot, but then they do. Okay, I see. Yeah. Give that extra little bit of history to it there. Yeah, there's a little hope spot they give Benoit quickly there before they stuff it out. Hmm, cool. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was quite a nice opener as well. Uh, It's very technically sound, Mm -hmm. but also really hard-hitting. Yes. I think it could have maybe had a touch faster pace, but at the same time, the pauses are mostly the result of Finley taking time to interact really well with the crowd. True who are quite hot for this match. They are, yes. I'm not quite sure how the chair shots suddenly aren't DQs, and it feels a bit strange to me that Benoit still gets another pretty notable string of offense after that vicious midair one. Mm. I kind of felt like that should have been closer to the end rather than the pivot point. Mm, I can see that, yeah. Still, both guys did a great job selling each other's offense, particularly Finley's amazing selling of Benoit's chops. And that definitely enhanced the intensity of the match, and it made it feel hard-fought and easy to get invested in. 
the ending is on the gentle end of the interference scale. I, I yeah. agree. But I do feel like it goes slightly against the story that they've been building about Finley wanting to win legit and prove himself. He won't take a count out, but he's perfectly happy to attack a distracted man from behind. Hmm. So it wouldn't bother me as much if they hadn't been like talking about, oh, he wants to beat him legit. He wants to beat him legit throughout the match. Yeah, I think for me it's gray enough because Booker doesn't actually like stop him behind the rope. His presence makes Benoit stop doing it. It's clearly Benoit's error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just feels like a little bit like if you want to really do exactly that storyline, you actually have Finley just wait. Mm -hmm. I guess you could argue that since he is the heel here, him going against his his own stated way to win does kind of make sense. But yeah, true, true. Yeah, but I, I can see your point. Yeah. Regardless, it was a really fun opener, and I hope we never see a fit who sign again, because Finley showed who he was here. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> In the wake of this, we would get the very famous Booker T. Chris Benoit Best of Seven series. Mm. Heard of that one. Yes. So the the idea of that is they're fighting each other, Best of Seven, decide who gets to challenge Finley on the next show, The Great American Bash. Wow. So, Great American Bash, when we get to that... We'll get the finals of that best seven series because shockingly, best seven goes to seven. You would never, you would have thought it would stop at four, but no. Yeah, I would have, I would have thought it'd just be a four, four match streak, and you know. Yeah, <laughs> you get the final match of that on the Grand American Bash, and the winner of that then challenges Finley on the same night. Okay, that sounds like that'll be a fun one when we reach it. Absolutely, yeah. We go to the internet station where Chris Jericho is talking to Lee Marshall. <laughs> No, no. Guys in the ring with Slambury, the winner gets to face you for the Cruiserweight Championship. Who is it that you'd like to face today? You know, Lee Marshall, it doesn't matter who it is that's in the ring with me. As soon as 15 man Cruiserweight Battle Royal, I mean, this whole thing is just a conspiracy from James J. Dillon to make sure that I get in the ring because I'm the most exciting, greatest performer in WCW. So I don't care who it is. Bring in anybody. Bring yourself in there. I'll kick your butt too because tonight (laughs) I'm going to win. That's all there is to it. perfectly fine quick promo from jericho but what honestly stole the show here was lee marshall pulling some excellent faces the whole time jericho was talking shaking his head and smiling in a very long-suffering manner (laughs) yeah i kind of feel for lee marshall because i feel like he never really gets a shot like on a big show other than i think the world war three shows yeah to do commentary for an extended period of time and like be on the show they bring him out for like the women's matches for a while yeah They never really give him the actual commentary position. I don't think he's bad. No. I can kind of see them maybe keeping him more as an interviewer, because I think he is actually a little better as an interviewer than as a commentary guy. Is there a word better than good to describe his his commentary skills, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There might be. There might be. Oh, okay. Um, Gratuitous? No. (laughs) I think grand, yeah. Grand would be good, yeah. But yeah, I I think he he mostly did Saturday Night, I believe, Mm -hmm. the idea. He has good personality, though. I mean, that's, 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 I enjoy that part of his uh, performance for sure. I think it's just a case where if we could gotten to do more of that, we could have a better, exactly. more informed opinion of what he's like. And he'd probably improve. Like, yeah. He seems far from hopeless on commentary. Yeah, yeah, for that, sure. Right? <laughs> he's no Mike Adam, that's for sure. <laughs> Tony says that Jericho easily wins the battle of which of those people is the most obnoxious, and Heenan jokes, You don't really know Lee, do you? Aww. <laughs> That's Heenan for you, though. Heenan has several very good lines tonight. Our second match is Brian Adams with Vincent 
of NWO Hollywood versus Lex Luger. The referee for this one is Scott Dickinson. So the storyline for this one's kind of weird. At least we consider who's in the match and then who's important in the storyline. In the build-up to this, Scott Steiner is acting injured, which is a thing he would do a few times. He'd go, oh, I'm injured, and then he'd, you know, of course, be a whole thing. So Rick Steiner comes out on Nitro two weeks before the show, saying he wants to work with his brother again, and he, he, he wants things to go back to normal. But obviously he doesn't trust Scott, because Scott famously betrays him a few months earlier. Yeah. So Scott comes out on his crutches, he even tries to cry a little. It's actually pretty good at acting for Scott Steiner. <laughs> he cries a little bit, and uh, he's really egged on by Oakland. He's like, look, he's your brother. He's crying. He's serious and believes it. He means this. If, if anyone could threaten his own tear ducts into crying, I think it'd be That's uh, true, Scott Steiner. Yeah. <laughs> Flexing different muscles and things will cry than yeah. normal, yeah. Initially, Rick still doesn't trust him because, you know, he's Scott Steiner. But then he says, you know, my partner again, we'll make for normal, and they're hugging. At that point, Brian Adams comes out and hits him with the bat, and they double-team him for a bit and walk off. That's a, used in a way to write Rick Steiner off TV to get actual soldier surgery. Oh, okay. Be out for a few months after this. So that's the angle they're using. On the next Nitro, Lex Luger, apparently real close friend with Rick Steiner, says it's the worst thing he's ever seen in town Brian Adams to a match. Lex, I... I- I'm not sure you get how this wor- how revenge works. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it, it's not a bad segment. It's not a bad story. It's just weird that it's Lex Luger and Brian Adams match and not, you know, I get where Rick Steiner's not here. He's definitely injured, but why isn't it Lex and Scott Steiner? Yeah, yeah. You would think that would be where it would go. So he just actually challenges Brian Adams. Yeah, he doesn't challenge Scott Steiner, and then Steiner says, "I'll fight you if you face Brian Adams." Nope. He goes right to challenge Brian Adams. Brian Adams was there. But he wasn't the guy that initiated the betrayal. That's definitely Scott Steiner. Yeah, yeah. Luger, we need to talk. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's strange. Okay. Yeah. NWO theme count one. <laughs> Ding. In a rather nice touch, Adams has these not work patterns at points on his outfit, but he's mixed in the letters NWO on the legs, but stylized so that they perfectly match up as part of the pattern. Hmm. I just appreciate that he managed to adapt his costume to the faction without compromising the overall look. Oh, okay. Take some real finagling sometimes. Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) Luger, of course, has his wonderfully catchy music and loads of pyro. Mm -hmm. Tony praises Luger as in great shape and a tremendously accommodating interview. Okay. Luger punches Adams out over the top rope knocks Adams and Vincent down with a double axe handle, and smacks them into each other before smashing Adams into the steps and ring post, selling it himself, of course. Naturally, yes. (laughs) Adams pokes Luger's eyes, but Luger keeps working the arm as Tony points out he's getting revenge for the shoulder injury inflicted on Rick Steiner. Back in, Luger gets a power slam, but Vincent climbs up, and when Luger grabs him, Adams hits Luger from behind, then hits a pile driver. Adams kicks Luger both inside and outside the ring, and Luger sells so loudly that the audio clips. (laughs) It's magical. It is, yeah. (laughs) Back in, Adams gets two counts with a backbreaker and some leg drops, but he and Luger double clothesline each other, and Luger kicks his injured shoulder. Adams calls for Vincent, but Luger decks Vincent, and Heenan notes listening to Adams is bad for Vincent's health, and he should really stop. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Luger ducks an Adams clothesline and swiftly scoops him up into the torture rack for the submission victory. Luger celebrates and rather quickly makes his exit, and Tony sells this as a victory on behalf of Rick Steiner and WCW. 
Heenan is highly amused by Vincent's swift rise and fall in the replays. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts on this one? It's not not bad. It's not great. It's fairly nothing. I think was my takeaway from this. It's a lot of brawling, which is okay. I'll give Luger credit. Luger tries to make a story in this short match of working the shoulder, mm-hmm. which is nice. Adams never does anything really bad. The worst thing you get with Adams is that quick sort of like stump pile driver, I guess you call that, the Jerry Lawler pile driver he tries to do. It doesn't look terrible, but because he's trying to make it happen so quickly, it's a little sloppy. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where maybe you shouldn't rush pile drivers. Yes. It's not the scariest one I've seen, but it's uh, it's not the smoothest one I've seen yeah. either. <laughs> exactly. The content Vincent interference was was it was what it was. He didn't really ever help all that much, other than the one time. So I guess it's really not that big a deal. Yeah, he doesn't majorly affect the ending or anything. It's, yeah, I don't mind interference in the middle of a match mm-hmm. as much as I mind interference at the end of a match. Yeah, I can see that. I think for me, the thing with the match is. It basically Lixer beats up Brian Adams for a while until the interference. Then he sells for a while. Then he just gets better. Yeah. And wins. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty simple match and it's very short. But I do appreciate what you mentioned. The, they give it a very clear story of using the Steiner injury angle to give Luger a focus for his offense. And I liked that it actually factored a little into the ending as Luger actually kicks Adams in the injured shoulder. Yes. To uh, break up his offense before dealing with Vincent. It's a subtle touch, but it, it, it's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Luger and Adams both performed pretty well, but this still felt like it's just the build-up match for an eventual Luger-Scott Steiner match, mm-hmm. and nothing really big or surprising happens on it, so I'm really not sure why this wasn't just a TV match. Yeah, for sure. I guess just wanted to have Lex Luger on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a case where I think Lex tries to add something to would be a fairly nothing throwaway mm-hmm. TV match. Since it's not pay-per-view, but otherwise, it's nothing else. Really so credit to him on that, honestly. Yeah. I I feel like that probably came from him, and yeah, th- that was a nice touch. And anything else, he sells so loudly that a hard picks it up from far away. Yes. Which is always good. There's points where he's he's selling, and he's standing next to crowd members who are hurling abuse at Brian Adams, and you can still hear Luger way louder than Whoa. them. <laughs> yeah. It's so amazing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it makes sense he's friends with Stain. They both have powerful lungs. <laughs> that's true, yes. Very true. Lex Luger would join the NWO Wolfpack. Not the next Nitro, but the Nitro after next. The oh. May 25th Nitro. As part of that continuing storyline. And he, of course, would ask his buddy, Sting, to join the group. Oh, okay. And see how that plays out in the storyline. Sting's got more than one choice to make. That's true. As Rick Steiner, he would come back in a few months to basically continue slash restart the feud with his brother. So Luger has no match against Scott Steiner as a result of this. Not on pay-per-view. Great American Bash, neither one's on the show. So. <sighs> They might fight Nitro. I don't have. I didn't watch the future Nitros, so maybe. But maybe Luger was like watching the entire thing and accidentally stubbed his toe and was too busy Luger selling to see who actually betrayed mm. Rick Steiner. Oh, he does point out something else kind of funny with that segment. So, so Scott Steiner comes out, um, you know, selling his crutches, selling his injury, and he says, "I don't want anything to do with the NBO, Blah blah blah. But he's not wearing like a Scott Steiner shirt or a generic WCW shirt. He's wearing his black and white NWO shirt. Well, I mean, he was he's too injured to get it off. Oh, okay. <laughs> so then when he betrays his brother and beats him up, he sort of stands around still wearing the same shirt, to which Tony Giovanni goes, oh, he must have picked his side in the in the feud. <laughs> 
You, you think they, they meant to have him come out with a Scott Steiner shirt or something over I it? I don't know. It feels like a Because they do the, like, remove the shirt to show the shirt thing all the time during yeah. this. Kurt Hennig does it, and Conan and both do it when they join the Wolfpack. Yeah. So they must have just forgot to get a second shirt. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Just funny, like, what a shock. The shirt he's been wearing the whole time is still on. So I guess <laughs> that proves the side he picked. That's funny. Yeah. Tony says they weren't expecting this and throws to Saturn backstage in a darkened room wearing a hoodie. We get an infinity mirror effect with a video screen behind him in kind of a cool touch. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be no gauntlet match tonight. And if anyone in the flock doesn't like it, well, you know what dressing room I'm in. I'm in the same one as you. And every one of you know me and know what I can do. Ever since I've gotten WCW, I've trusted Raven to guide my career. And all I've heard is, what about me? No, what about me? What about Saturn? From now on, I take care of myself. I look out for myself. And tonight, I start with Goldberg. It's my opportunity to be the U.S. heavyweight champion. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. Not even Raven. I thought it was quite a nice, subdued, but defiant promo from Saturn here. Yeah. It's it's a man trying to rise on his own after following another for too long. Yeah. He has a very even tone and a measured delivery, and it's a bit risky, honestly. It could come off as boring or emotionless, but I think it actually makes it really work, and it sounds thoughtful, like controlled emotion rather than lacking emotion. Yeah. I think in general, he's kind of an underrated promo. Mm-hmm. He'd never deliver like great, like amazing, musty promos, but he's never bad at promos either. You give him something he can really, really work with, yeah. and he can clearly work with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think this is really a great promo, and it draws on a considerable amount of history from the character to pull you in and make you care. It's a bit of a shame that he's using it to build to a match against Goldberg, as it's going to be really tough for him to build off the momentum that he's creating here. That's true. Goldberg is, I believe, 87 and 0 at this point. Yeah, to, to be clear, the match could still be great. Yeah. It's just that Goldberg's definitely winning <laughs> yeah. at this point in 1998. And crushing defeat doesn't tend to build momentum. <laughs> I can see that, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I admit being a little bit confused about why Saturn can apparently just cancel the Flock's planned gauntlet match against Goldberg. Yeah. It seems like there'd be a lot of other people involved in that decision. You can't just say no. <laughs> right. Because, so to break it down, the idea was going to be that they'd be a gauntlet match with all the flock members talenting Goldberg. And if any of them won, Raven would win the title. Yeah. That was the idea, just to be clear. So Saturn is canceling the match, superseding the people who make the matches. Yeah. Canceling the match on behalf of everyone, basically. Because yeah. <laughs> he's, he's giving himself a title match, basically. Yes. He's, he's taking one away from Raven. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can't do that. Yeah. I get that his mindset of, like, you know, if they have a problem with it, come to me, but I think, you know, J.J. Dillon might have been Right, yeah. I mean, it'd be fine if they just introed, like, he actually talked to J.J. Dillon. Yeah. Even if the announcers afterwards said, oh, he talked to J.J. Dillon, and, or something like that, to, to confirm that someone in it with an actual authority said okay. Yeah. But small, small quibble on a great promo. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Our third match is the Cruiserweight Battle Royal for the number one contendership to Chris Jericho's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. The referees for this one are Nick Patrick inside the ring and Scott Dickinson, Charles Robinson, Billy Silverman, and Mickey J outside the ring. 
They are leaving nothing to chance with refereeing this time, apparently. I apparently so, yeah. Only ref on the show that I didn't see outside the ring was Mark Curtis. Mm, interesting. <laughs> so at this point, Chris Jericho, as you noted from the earlier bit, is a cocky heel. Yes. <laughs> so at this point, he's held the towel for a little while. He's been fending off challenges left and right. Malenko would challenge Jericho and lose through various, of course, nefarious cheating ways Jericho would do such. Mm-hmm. Malenko would cut a promo after the match after losing, like, I think two or three straight matches to Jericho between Nitro and pay-per-view, saying he was going home and he was upset and everything. Jericho would not, of course, let that be because he's a heel, especially a 90s heel. Because he's Jericho. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But as a 90s heel, you, can't, you let nothing go as that kind of character. So he berates Dean, calling him a loser. He carries out a uh, picture of him where he draws like glasses on him, like a funny mustache. Uh, he makes fun of his brother, Joe Malenko. However, the big thing, he would then attack the name of Boris Malenko, a.k.a. the Great Malenko, Dean's father, who about a year before this had passed away. Oh, okay. They obviously got permission to do this from Malenko. I like to think that's what he wanted, and I hope it didn't just none of this bothered him. I assume he was fine with it. Jericho talks about how he's undefeated. He's beat everyone there is to beat. He's taken trophies from who he's beat, like Hucha Guerrera and Prince Iakea. He says his, his goal is to retire the title because no one can take it from him. J.J. Dillon, of course, disagrees with that idea and says that he booked a match with Slambury, which is the, I mentioned, the Battle Royal, with all the other contenders coming for him. Oh, okay. Should have tried the Perry Saturn strategy of just saying no. Yeah. <laughs> well, to his credit, what he's... He reacts to the news when he's told that there's a battle royal and the winner immediately fights him. He thinks the odds are perfectly in his favor now because they got to fight each other and fight him. So he has no problem with the match now. Okay. F- fair enough. In this battle royal, you can be eliminated by pinfall or by both feet touching the ringside floor. You do not actually have to go over the top rope. Correct. You can even go through the ropes. That's a weird thing. It's, it's, it's yeah. strange, yeah. Because that's something WWE did in later years in women's battle worlds. Apparently, they did not trust them to go over the top rope and take bumps. <laughs> I don't know if that's was it an accurate mindset or just kind of sad. WCW reuses the dramatic music from the opening video package for the entrances here. And Chris Jericho wonderfully interrupts Dave Penzer to do the ring introductions himself, mm-hmm. claiming that Penzer knows nothing about any of them. <laughs> One of these fine contestants, he says, will get a chance at the cruiserweight belt. They'll never win it. <laughs> yes. They'll get a shot at it, though. Our participants, as introduced by Chris Jericho, are... This guy's hat never comes off. Super Callow. He's got about a 1 in 10 chance of winning. <laughs> okay. This guy used to be a great bartender, Chavo Guerrero Jr., about a 2 in 10. From selling chimichangas on the streets to WCW, Ciclope... He can't afford a mask. He's using paint. Damien. <laughs> the winner of the Lou Ferrigno lookalike contest, El Dandy. And he's right. He looks very much like Lou Ferrigno. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> the world welterlight featherweight something champion, El Grio. <laughs> <laughs> the ugliest man in our sport today, Juventud Quasi Juice Guerrero. Yeah. Rock, rock, never stop, Marty Gennetti. <laughs> a lost and lonely soul. Kidman. I've got some calamine lotion for you after the show. <laughs> the true shooter, Evan Courageous. Zero, zero in ten chance, Jericho says. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, he would be future cruiserweight champion. Like yes. two years from now. 
I want my Loverboy tape back, Lenny Lane. <laughs> yes. Now, isn't at this point, they, they, they're coming out a little bit fast, aren't they? He gets a little rushed. Yeah, yeah, he gets a little rushed. I think he wanted to do the chance out of 10 gimmick for all of them, yeah. but they start coming out really, really yeah, fast. Yeah, Lenny Lane is like, has the guy behind him. Like, I want yeah, literally, him Psychosis comes out right after Lenny Lane. Jericho does joke that he has a lot of hubcaps in his collection and can find one for you if you want one. Yeah. Silver King, if he wins 12 more matches, he'll be upgraded to Golden King. Nice. That yeah. was my favorite line. That's a good one, yeah. <laughs> Johnny Swinger, have you ever heard of this guy? I haven't. <laughs> Jericho even mispronounces his name at first and gives him also a 0 out of 10 chance. And representing Viano's 1 through 62, Viano 4. <laughs> I always wonder how they decide which when there's matches like that. Like, why is it Viano 4? Yeah. I, I almost wish they'd given us, I know it'd be stupid, but give us a match on like Saturday night between all the Vianos yes. for that spot. Oh my gosh, that'd be great. An all Viano match would be great. Just have a, yeah, have, have a Royal Rumble of all the Vianos. No. Exactly, yeah, it'd be great. Even, I'm sure there's not actually 62 of them, but no. seriously, just actually do World War Three. everybody dressed up in, in Viano outfits. Nice, yeah. <laughs> but the best World War Three. <laughs> yes, for sure. That absolutely wonderful performance done jericho notes that he's going backstage for some coffee because none of them will ever beat him and win the title <laughs> that was one of the greatest things that we have ever seen on a wcw show it was pretty good yeah i'm kind of for that one yeah yeah i think like i said the only flaw is jericho doesn't give a chance rating for every wrestler and i think like you pointed out they're just coming out too fast for him to get in all the jokes he wants to do yeah for sure on to the actual match so it's a battle royale, so I'm just going to call out highlights. <laughs> yes. Evan Courageous, who I mistook for Johnny Swinger because they're nearly identical, does a pretty nice springboard splash into the ring on Psychosis. Heenan praises Jericho's intro. <laughs> Tony says, are you kidding me? Heenan, no, Kidman's in the ring. <laughs> oh. Tony does manage to turn Heenan against Jericho by claiming Jericho's going to come and take Heenan's place as color commentator. Oof. Which, he'd be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Courageous is elimination number one, thanks to a Kidman clothesline. El Dandy and Psychosis try some some kind of tilt-a-whirl spot, but Dandy just kind of drops Psychosis on his feet and he falls over unceremoniously. Yeah, for that one. Johnny Swinger hits a knee strike on Chavo, but then charges him and gets dumped out for elimination number two. We get a split screen of Jericho, indeed, drinking coffee and watching the match backstage. Mm-hmm. Nice Tornado DDT by Chavo on Silver King, and a good Diving Hurricanrana by Damien on El Grio. Ciclope brawls with Lenny Lane in the corner, but Silver King interrupts, so Ciclope just goes to fight Kidman. Hoovy sets Super Calo on the turnbuckle, then dropkicks him out onto the floor for elimination number three. Lenny Lane repeats that spot on Silver King for elimination number four, just as El Grio is doing a missile dropkick at Damien while El Dandy holds him, but Damien dodges and El Grio hits El Dandy. The commentators miss poor Silver King's elimination as a result, with Tony finally realizing that it happened uh, several seconds later. Aww. <laughs> El Grio dodges a Damien top rope moonsault, but he needn't have bothered since it would have missed by a country mile even if he'd laid still. Yes. <laughs> Tony predicts Juventud Guerrero will win it, while Heenan predicts Chavo Guerrero. Tanay agrees with Tony. Juventud leaps off the top rope for a Herc Rana on Psychosis as El Grio charges at El Dandy and gets dumped out. Elimination number five. Janetti punches El Dandy against the robes, but Dandy ducks and dumps him out for elimination number six. 
Viano Four gets Damien on the top rope, but Damien swings over the top rope and gets his legs around Four to throw him over for elimination number seven. The least you could have done is go out fourth, Viano Four. Right, I was going to say that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Lane slams Hoovy and asks Kidman to hold him. Kidman's all, sure, bro. But while Lane poses up top, Kidman throws Hoovy into him to send Lane out for elimination number eight. In retrospect, he really should have seen that coming. Yeah, right? <laughs> Damien boots a charging psychosis in the butt to send him flying at the ropes, but he bounces off and stays in. Weird spot. <laughs> yeah. Damien tries an ill-advised rope walk with psychosis, so psychosis crotches him on the ropes and Hoovy springboard dropkicks Damien out for elimination number 9. Chavo dropkicks El Dandy out for elimination 10. Kidman pulls down the ropes on a Chavo charge and Chavo spills out for elimination 11. He then claims he knew, knew Chavo would lose and he picked Kidman. <laughs> <laughs> Psychosis and Kidman hurl Cyclope and Hoovy at each other, but Cyclope throws Hoovy overhead, and he splashes Kidman. Psychosis charges at Cyclope, but he ducks a flying knee strike, and Psychosis acrobatically flies out for elimination number 12. Kidman gets Hoovy on the ropes, but Hoovy gets his legs around Kidman and uses the momentum to pull him out for elimination 13. Heaton claims he knew Kidman would lose. <laughs> It's down now to Hoovy and Cyclope, and Heenan predicts Cyclope because he's bigger. It's all logic. Hoovy and Cyclope circle, but then pause, staring each other down. Hoovy pauses and looks towards the ramp, then shakes Cyclope's hand and jumps out of the ring for elimination 14, making Cyclope the winner. As the commentators react with astonishment, Jericho gets in the ring, but Cyclope slowly removes his mask revealing that he is, in fact, not Cyclope, but Dean Malenko. Dun-dun-dun. Jericho gives a tremendous oh-crap expression as the crowd goes wild. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Robinson signals for the bell. But before we get to that match, let's talk about this one. So, thoughts on the Battle Royal? It was decent, but, I don't know, my problem is that this format, with all of them ringing at the same time, trying to do the spots kind of hampers them. I don't know mm -hmm. if you might agree or disagree with that. They, they get moments where they get to do the, the interesting spots, like trying the rope walk, and like, I'll have to be covered there. But there's a lot of points, especially early on, where they just kind of have to stay in a corner and do simple spots. They have no room to go anywhere. Right. Yep. I believe there's even one point where, I forget who it is, maybe like an dandy maybe, he tries to throw something out the ropes for a spot, but people are just in the way, so he's just sort of stop and do something else instead. I feel like the idea of this is really good. I feel like this would work better if this is like a Royal Rumble type situation where they're coming out every like 90 seconds or 12 minutes or so. Yes. Um, so they could have more singles matches than smaller sections here. Mm -hmm. I think it definitely picks up once they get more people out of the ring so there's more room in there. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a stifling format for me personally. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think this would have been a lot better as a... Royal Rumble type of thing, or you know, some sort of staggered elimination type of type something of like a gauntlet match, even maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a match, it's it's a battle royal. It's a lot of brawling, a few minor high spots, and then a string of eliminations. The elimination spots even actually get a tad repetitive in this one. We get multiple cases of someone being drop kicked off the top turnbuckle. Yeah, multiple leg scissors over the ropes, and multiple duck a charge, and someone spills out. Yeah. Considering these are lucha guys, I actually expected a more variety there. Right. As an angle, though, this is brilliant. Yes. There's no sign that Cyclope is actually Malenko throughout the match, and he's able to just kind of hide among the crowd of competitors for most of it. 
Also somewhat noteworthy, I went back and checked, and I don't think Juvia and Ciclope ever fight hmm. for the entire match, since it's clear at the end they have an arrangement. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so it's a decent match, but an awesome, awesome angle. Hmm. I will say there's one glaring error with this match. No La Parca. Yes, that is true. You bring all these luchadors out, and then you have room for Johnny Swinger and Evan Courageous. No La Parca? Come on. <laughs> At this point, it is just personal, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but yeah, if we had done like the World Rumble like situation or anything we talked about, you also could have had Jericho's entrance quips throughout the match as well. That's true. Yeah. Have him come over to the commentary table or just stay by the entrance ramp and yeah. announce new guys and maybe give reactions to people getting thrown out or something, mm-hmm. which would be gold. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting noticed on all the competitors here. Trying, I recognize a bunch of them. Even if I see them on a random night of the thunders like El Dandy and Silver King. Do you know who El Grio is? No. El Grio is the actual guy who's Cyclope. Oh, really? Yes. So he got to be in the match. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so he he's in your outfit, so you can be so you just it's his only appearance is El Grio. He had to find another outfit. Yeah. That's actually kinda cool though, that you got to they're having Malenko use his gimmick, so he gets to still be in the match. Yeah. Just under a different gimmick. That's that's kinda nice. And I said they really should have had him as sequel play eliminate El Grio. <laughs> that's really really into it, yeah. So this leads right into our fourth match which is the Man of a Thousand Holds, the Iceman and not Ciclope, Dean Malenko versus Chris Jericho for Jericho's WCW World Cruiserweight Championship. Referee for this one is Charles Robinson. Freaking out, Jericho charges before even removing his title belt, but Malenko beats the ever-loving crap out of him as Heenan points out that this is not the usual Iceman. He's showing a ton of anger. Hoovy cheers Malenko on as he floats over a Jericho suplex attempt and hits a nice leg lariat, then beats Jericho up outside when Jericho tries to flee. Back in, an ambush and an appeal for mercy both come up flat, but Jericho manages to counter a charge with a stun gun. Jericho seems to consider leaving even with Malenko down, and Tanay notes his confusion and distress. Jericho finally hits a running senton and a suplex, then regains some confidence, trying a one-foot pin. Come on, baby! (laughs) (laughs) Just once that'll work. It gets two. (laughs) A lion salt also gets two, but Malenko recovers and they counter-wrestle until Jericho hits an awesome double underhook backbreaker, which I don't think I've ever seen before, Mm. and goes to the lion tamer. But Malenko muscles off the ground and snatches his leg, countering into an ankle lock. Amazing counter there. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Jericho gets the ropes. A Jericho top rope back elbow gets two and nine-tenths, as I notice signs in the crowd that imply unkind things about Jericho that I shan't repeat, and misspell his name. Yes. Jeez. Yeah, there's one is Jericho, but put a U in it, right? Jericho, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. I think they both are, actually. So oh, geez. They probably thought they were clever for something, yeah. but I don't know. Unless you're saying he's skipping jury duty, I'm not really yeah. sure what you're implying. Right, yeah. Jericho slaps Malenko, riling him up. And Malenko wins a slugfest, but Jericho dodges a corner charge and sets Malenko up top, only for Malenko to stun him, scoop him up, and hit a second rope gut buster. Malenko drags himself to his feet, roars, and slaps on the Texas cloverleaf. Jericho crawls for the ropes, but Malenko drags him back, leaving him no choice but to tap out, and giving Malenko the submission victory. Malenko celebrates with the belt before a rapturous crowd and points up at the heavens, 
dedicating the win to his departed father, Boris Malenko. He just out Jerichoed Chris Jericho, Tanae says. <laughs> I know that was a verb. Thoughts on this one? It's a good match. Like in the match we'll see later, it's one of those interesting ones where there's almost two different parts to it. Because mm-hmm. his first part is very much, like I mentioned, the angries are brawling Malenko. I think it works for the storyline, but it's, it's just... Feels it feels weird to see him do that. It's a very, very different thing, and I actually think that actually helps enhance it yeah. from the story. Yeah, I, I don't think it takes away from the match. It's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you, you either love it or hate it just because it feels out of place. Mm-hmm. But it definitely makes sense in the storyline. For me, that's a bit lopsided just because he's beating up Jericho so much. Obviously, that's good for the story of having him beat up the guy who's been berating the family and everything. It totally makes sense. Definitely, for me, it picks up more in the second half when it's more of a typical mm-hmm. Malenko-Jericho match. It builds up nicely the, to the big, strong finish with the hold pulling him out there. The crowd really pops for it. So oh, yeah. All the whole thing works really well. Yeah, this was perhaps the most intense and emotional performance that you will ever see from Dean Malenko. Yeah. It, as you pointed out, is not as technical a match as I'm used to from him. But nevertheless, for the pure emotion of the performance and the way both of these guys nailed their characters, it was terrific. And don't think I'm underselling the action. Even if there's more punching and kicking than the Malenko norm, there's still some absolutely mind-blowing counter-wrestling moments and hold escapes. That escape from the Lion Tamer being the match's standout moment, I think. Yeah, it was good, yeah. He basically defies gravity for a moment. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Not to be outdone, Jericho shows off his incredible agility and plays a pitch-perfect overconfident heel who just got his overconfidence completely crushed. Yeah. (laughs) The visible fear in his eyes is incredible. There's not a single moment when he's anything less than completely nailing his role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even when he's on top, he seems thrown, terrified, and only allowing his usual assurance to show for the briefest of moments. Yeah. So, really, I thought a brilliant performance by both, even as quite a short match. Mm-hmm. I was thinking with this match from rewatching it, looking at it from a modern perspective, I'm curious like how that would work, because I feel like... If this was done, like, say this is the same angle was done 2021 or even 2020, whenever, you would have a mask before the match. You would have had the match start, and he, he thinks like he's going to beat up Cyclope. Maybe he gets the advantage for a few minutes, and then Cyclope counters the wall to Jericho. Mm-hmm. He goes to Cloverleaf, and you're like, wait, what? And then he pulls the mask up after he wins. Yeah, or at an important turning point in the match, I could see you doing that. Yeah. Or Jericho even thinking, I'm going to be a jerk and, un- and un- unmask Cyclope in the middle of the match than he does as Dean Malenko. And you're like, <gasps> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I-, I thought it was a very, very neat storyline and definitely gets a crazy huge crowd reaction. I mean, that's... Yeah. They definitely build Jericho really strongly on the show as someone you want to see lose, for sure. Yes. So, there's a few weeks where... Jericho or Horace complaining and making a big fuss about everything. Ultimately, they strip Malenko of the title because he didn't win the Battle Royal as himself. Seems thin. Seems that's a thin premise, yeah. All that is to set up a match at the Great American Bash, where the title's on the line again between these two to determine who'd be the real champion this time. Oh, okay. So it's in the service of the later storyline, but it feels kind of silly to take the title away from It him. does, it does. It feels like that could be your excuse for why Jericho gets... A rematch, yeah. though I realize we tend to have the champions rematch anyway, but yeah. I would have used it more that way rather than saying, oh, you're stripped of the title. Because he did win the match. I mean, technically, Hoovy eliminated himself. He won by, by the rules of the match. He won by the yeah, rules yeah. of the match, yeah. yes. Or if he really wanted to go into it, you could have had, had it act like normal and Cyclope gets a match against Blanco since he technically lost his chance. 
And of course, Derko and Mass Single Pay detect. And Link, I would turn it full <laughs> around hilarious. again. How does that feel? I hit it with a chair. Yeah. That'd be funny. That would be funny. Yeah. That would be funny. I can't believe that Link didn't see that coming. <laughs> That's the same trick he used. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. We go straight to our fifth match, which is Diamond Dallas Page versus Raven in a Bowery death match. The referee for this one is Billy Silverman. As the cage for the match, which is a full ring enclosure with a roof, lowers with dramatic lighting, Tony explains that the only way to win this match is to knock your opponent down so he cannot respond to a 10 count. Then we kill some time watching the Vinnie Mac cam, a helicopter shot of a white limo pulling up to the arena. I hope, but doubt, that WCW used stock footage for this rather than actually hiring a helicopter camera, but... Yeah, we we know it's WCW. They were wasting money any way they could. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we cut to a ground shot of the limo, and Doug Dellinger walks out and looks in the windows for quite a while. Yeah, Doug, that's a car, Heenan says. <laughs> yeah. Tony jokes that you'd know it was Vince if JR jumped out carrying the bags. Ouch. Jeez, Tony, you worked with JR. And Vince, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Dellinger goes out to talk with another security guy, and Tony says, we're not going to waste any more time. As ways to blow some time while the cage lowers go, this was among the most boring and stupid ones WCW has ever chosen, and I would have rather watched the cage come down. Yes. <laughs> I will say that left to confuse me a little bit, because he walks with a guy, I guess, I thought that was the limo driver. Me like, too! Yeah, me yeah, too. yeah, yeah, okay, so that wasn't just me then. Yeah. But they, they do identify him, commentary ad- identifies him as uh, another security guy, and he does have a walkie-talkie. Like That's true, yeah. yeah. But yeah, he's he's dressed like a limo driver. Because he walks past the limo to a guy sitting in front of it, so I thought I'd a limo driver. Yes, yeah. Like he's always oh, asked the guy who's in the car, which would be an easy thing to do. All right, uh, back to the match, uh, blessedly. Then U.S. champion coming off of Starcade, as you remember from that show, mm-hmm. DDP, had a feud with Raven and a certain point in Benoit as well. Raven will ultimately win the U.S. title. Unfortunately, his reign would be very short-lived, as he'd be challenged on the following Nitro by Goldberg. And can see how that went. <laughs> yeah, can you see how that went? <laughs> So yeah, Raven as U.S. champion is less than 24 hours because of that. Maybe arguably 24 hours, but close. Do we go get a get kind of a promo where he starts going the what about me? Ah! <laughs> if he didn't just his beard mid promo, that'd been great. Yeah. Quote the Raven never. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with that in mind, the feud just kind of kept going without the U.S. title, which is kind of weird. There's so much over the title, and like. I guess they just, at this point, they hate each other enough. Mm-hmm. Um, they drag family into it. Uh, DDP brings up Raven's family. The whole thing they start where Raven says he grew up in the Bowery, but apparently he actually grew up in, like, Long Island or, like, somewhere in, like, Massachusetts, the New England area or something. So he's actually rich. I think they gain more of that later. Mm-hmm. Raven, in turn, brings up, like, DDP's mother. Like, his parents were divorced and all this stuff. Jeez. Weird, yeah. It's... Again, I hope they all got consent for this, but it feels really like weird attempts to make it personal. I mean, by this point with DDP, I kind of expect that he would have had all those insults written out in a large binder with iambic pentameter uh, poetry, too. Yes, so. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Nothing happens to DDP without, with, without much, much loads of pre-clearance. <laughs> that's true, true, yeah. So. By the way, DDP's response to having him uh, insult his family's mother is to attack him, come out to the ringside, and choke him with the noose, which comes into play later in this match as well. The confusing side happening in this as well. There is Itchy with the Flock, as we noted from the Saturn promo earlier. However, 
it more of it relates to Van Hammer, or I think they just mostly call him Hammer. They kind of get degree in it. Let's just keep calling him Van Hammer. Okay. It sounds stupider that way. I, I think as far as the brand, they call him Hammer, but either one's stupid. Yeah. The tension between Saturn and Hammer, or Van Hammer, leading up to a match on Nitro two weeks before this, where the loser must leave the flock. There's a whole thing where a concession stand guy attacks both of them and makes sure that Van Hammer is on top of Saturn. So now Saturn is out of the flock. Meanwhile, Raven complains about an unsafe working environment because this same person attacked him a couple of times, and obviously he was nearly murdered by TDP with that noose, as I mentioned. So on the final Nitro before this, Raven asks for security, so J.J. Dillon says they're hiring private Riot Squad security for him, which is the plot point. Okay. And they bring Saturn now to talk about their issues. While Saturn's walking out, they decide to just bum-rush, hammer, beat him up, and toss him out. <laughs> They then try to retcon the match with saying, it's a loser leaves a flock match, and Van Hammer is the real loser here. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> it worked, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I agree, he is a loser, but... Yes. little side note to that attack earlier as well. Session stand guy attacks him with the drink stand, like with the whole beer. They kind of clear, clear it's beer or water, but it looks like beer. Hacks him with the thing, so it spills fluid all over the center of the ring. They have a have match next after this, where the ring is still clearly wet. And poor Hutu, Hutu Guerrero is wrestling, I think it's Sick Boy. And he does this finish sequence, which is the Hoovy Driver and then the 450. The Hoovy Driver is a little scary because he kind of slips while doing it. Oh, God. Everyone's fine, but it's like, maybe don't stand in the wet spot while doing a very precisely timed, I guess, scoop slam pile driver. What do you call that move? <laughs> yeah, like, okay. That's, that's a little scary. But yeah, so now we have Riot Squad people, Van Hammer is out of the flock, and we have this Bowery Death match. Okay. So yeah, blessedly, we come back to the arena to see Diamond Dallas Page make his entrance. He has a little trouble with the cage door, gets it open, then decides to climb on top of the cage anyway to give us the sign of the diamond cutter. Heenan notices that there's garbage cans in the cage, and Tony jokes that he notices those fast and rummages through them regularly. <laughs> Heenan starts to tell Tony that he found a credit card in one once, and Tony shuts that right down. <laughs> Raven enters, surrounded by guys in riot officer gear, complete with batons and pistols. That's true. Hopefully those would still cause a disqualification, even in this match. I mean, no rules. Tanay notes the riot squad were provided by WCW to protect Raven from unsafe working conditions, as Tony notes that he's been attacked by a fan a few times. Raven gets in the cage, and the door is locked, so we can finally start. Raven charges, but Paige rams him into the turnbuckle hard enough to send him rebounding across the ring. As Paige goes for weapons in one of the few garbage cans suspended from the cage, Raven sends him face-first into the side of a can. Raven sends Paige into cans and cage several times, then dumps out weapons from the cans. We've got a bull rope, a shovel, and a VCR, among other things. Yes, I did say VCR. Mm-hmm. Heenan jokes that it looks like Tony's room, and Tony actually agrees. Oh, no. Paige recovers and knocks Raven flat with a spinning lariat, then lassos him with the rope, flings him hard to the cage, and hangs him from the cage's central bar. Raven uh, is finally up after a very loud eight count, so Paige whacks him with the VCR for seven. Yeah, as a fan of dead media, the only way that spot could be sadder for me is if he took a laser disc and broke it over his head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Betamax. Yeah, 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 I don't like it as much as VHS. 
The fans do an ECW chant, though I'm pretty sure some actually chant VCR, VCR. That'd be nice. (laughs) Heenan tells fans to do that with their VCRs at home. (laughs) Tony says he's a bad influence. Yes. Raven sends Paige into another garbage can for seven, then batters him with can lids and cookie sheets before setting up a chair. Paige fights, so Raven puts on a sleeper, and Paige excellently wobbles and flails. Mm -hmm. They fall back into Silverman, knocking him out. Paige, jawbreakers free, and drop toe holds Raven into the chair. But flock members come out, shove past the riot squad, and cut off the lock. Only for former flock member Van Hammer to use a stop sign to, well, stop them. Yeah. So I guess that's stop hammer time. That works, that works yeah. <laughs> Can't we just held the sign up and they were just fro- frozen in place? That would have been great. Ah, he has a sign up. The riot squad makes Hammer leave as Paige beats the crap out of Raven. But two of the squad suddenly attack Paige, revealing themselves as flock members Kidman and Horace. Paige ducks the stop sign shot, and Kidman nails Horace, and Paige counters a Kidman cage-assisted kick with a diamond cutter. Great bit there. Oh yeah, for sure. Raven hits Paige with a fire extinguisher and the Evenflow DDT as Silverman wakes up. Paige shows signs of life at six, so Raven kicks him and they trade blows. Raven counters a diamond cutter into his own diamond cutter, quite nicely, mm-hmm. for nine. Raven tries a chair shot, but Paige dodges and hits the diamond cutter. Both lie exhausted, but Paige is up, if wobbly, at nine, and Raven isn't, giving Paige the victory. I love Paige, like, goes all, like, super wide-legged, you yeah. know, uh, does, like, the splits as he's trying to stand. and He, he looks, looks like he's trying to tend to ride an invisible horse for yeah. there, yeah. Paige is very, very good at acting wobbly and dazed. That's mm-hmm, yeah. something I've learned over his over watching his career. It's true, yeah. <laughs> Paige slumps to the ropes soon after the bell rings and crawls out the door. Recovering outside, he walks out through the crowd, but we suddenly come back to the ring, where another riot officer is cuffing the various flock members to the cage. He catapults Raven into the cage, then cuffs both of Raven's arms to the cage and removes his helmet, revealing that he's Mortis. Mortis, unmasked, revealing his face, the as-yet-unnamed Chris Canyon. Tony recognizes him as the vendor who attacked Raven previously. Mortis clubs Raven in the face with a chair, spits at him, and makes his exit as we get replays of the Evenflow and the final Diamond Cutter. Thoughts on this one? It's a pretty strong match. For me, it's very chaotic, though. Yes. There's a lot of plunder, has a lot of interference... That said, there are there's some really good spots. Mm-hmm. Um, there's good counter-wrestling. DDP's body language and his delivery of all the moves is really good. I think the only blemish in DDP for me here is that the last demo cutter, while I understand the quickness of it, if you watch it, he's clearly pulling Riven down by his shirt mm. and not really like hooking the head. Yeah, okay. It happened quickly, so it's not something you'll really notice unless you're really obsessed with detail like I am, but yeah. He does two of them in cutters. He gets Horace with a good one. Mm-hmm. And obviously his counter one, the Kidman's really good. That's that's so cool. Yeah. So one out of three being so-so is for honestly good odds for a movie yeah. like that, but yeah. For me, the interference is a bit much, though. This is so much in this match. I mean, they're already in the cage. Then we have weapons. Then we have a ref knockout. Then we have people interfering. Boy, all this stuff is going on. It's just, it's kind of hard, hard to keep up with everything. I do have a question related to the finish as well. Okay, so 
There were four Riot Squad members. I was going to ask, let's say. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll get to it first. Okay, so there are four Riot Squad members when this, when this starts. Mm-hmm. Two of them are revealed to be Horace Boulder, a.k.a. Horace Hogan, and Kidman. And one of them is Chris Canyon as Mortis, as a security guard. Yes. Which, by the way, that must have been fun. Oh, God. Wearing a to be. full helmet over your mask, over your face. Yes. Man. Who the hell was the fourth guy? I guess that was the, just the regular Riot Squad guy who's standing there with three people who are not his normal co-workers the entire time. Yeah. And it does not get clued in. I assume he lost his job. I would think. <laughs> I would hope. Yeah. It was just like, did they not think about that? <laughs> like, were there supposed to be three people? Like, one more flock person to be involved, but, but wasn't? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's very strange. I assume that, like, I would love to have seen the conversations backstage where they were all somehow managing to keep their cover, not only from him, but from each other. Yeah, yeah. And it, presumably, they all stood backstage, just all wearing the riot helmets the entire time. Yeah. So they couldn't see each other's faces. Yeah, if, if all four of them were secretly flock members, that'd be okay, honestly. Yeah. But the fact that one of them was not is confusing. Yeah, and, he, and I picture him like talking to talking to Mortis and saying, "Hey, hey, uh, hey, Jay, how's your kids?" Whereas, like, I will consume your soul and take your ancestral armor. It's like that's a weird thing to say, Jay. Are you feeling okay? <laughs> yeah, Jay, your voice sounds weird. It's kind of muffled, like you're wearing some of your of your mouth the whole time, <laughs> not just this helmet. Yeah. So maybe Mortis, since he's technically Mortis up until th- the unmasking. Maybe so he went and got a job with the Riot Squad. We're, of course, wearing his full Mortis gear. I should be a security guard. I'm really big, see? Okay, you're hired. You put the helmet on. <laughs> maybe maybe the fourth guy was James Vandenberg. Oh, okay. They apparently did forget to cancel his contract for the, the year and hate him an extra year. So that is very possible. It is a very weird question, isn't it? Just on... Yeah, so the fourth guy just kind of leaves then? Yeah, he's just, well, I've completely failed my job in all respects and been a member of a squad that was infiltrated by not one, but two enemy factions. Yeah, yeah. In the words of Green Arrow, you have failed this city. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought this was a fun and very wild brawl with just enough actual story to keep me invested. Page and Raven really went at it, and they came up with some very creative spots beyond just whacking each other hard with objects, with a few really clever reversals and some nice delayed gratification points, particularly the dance around who goes into the uh, chair when it's set up. Yeah. The Flock's involvement does make something of a mockery of the cage stipulation, but it was also kind of expected, and I can forgive it, since it's explicitly about showing how much Raven plans ahead for things, and involving the Flock versus Flock rejects storyline. And since it doesn't, in the end, give us an actual screwy finish. Mm-hmm. Again, interference during the match, mm-hmm. not at the end of the match. So you're saying the only thing we're missing was Raven asking how he got these scars in his face? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. The various diamond cutter spots are all terrific, and the ending with both men down and exhausted until Paige barely makes it to his feet feels earned. Mm-hmm. Kenyon's reveal was also intriguing, though I'd prefer something other than an unprotected chair shot to the face, obviously. Yeah. Still, I thought this was a very fun spectacle, and it managed to have a story as well, so well done. If memory serves, a couple years earlier, maybe less than that, they did a similar thing with Raven attacking Sandman, I believe, in ECW. Yeah. And cutting him to a cage and giving him a chair shot like that, which is really sick looking. So, I think maybe that's them trying to call back. Probably referencing it, yeah. yeah. Obviously, I'm thinking chair shots are really bad. We know that now, and we kind of knew it then, too. 
Mm-hmm. It's not really a surprise, but yeah. I can at least understand why they do it contextually, but yeah. So now known as Canyon, the former Flock wannabe would challenge the group, leading to a match against Perry Saturn at the Great American Bash. Raven would, of course, get involved, as you would expect. Yeah. Curiously, after all this, this is, so this is a blow-off to the Raven-DDP feud. DDP on the next show says he's done fighting Raven, which kind of makes sense. There's no title involved anymore. What does he need to do? Yeah. Plus, when do you take out the VCR? I mean... I mean, he, this match technically is DDP beating Raven and the entire flock. Correct. Basically. Yes. Weirdly, after that, he's actually not on the next pay-per-view. Really? Yeah, he's not on the American Bash. Diamond Dallas Page. Yeah. Is not on the next... Wow. Okay. Yeah, at this point in WCW, they have so many people that they'll be show with, like, without Ray Savage, even when he's not injured and stuff like that. It's it's a common thing, but it's still weird. Hmm. Like, Lex and DDP are both not on the next pay-per-view, which is curious. Weird. Yeah. Following that net show... That would begin his string of celebrity tag partner matches. So, oh. DDP would re- rebound in an interesting sort of way from that. <laughs> so maybe he was gone from the next show so that he had time to write his next binder full of moves to teach like Jay Leno and people. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Very possible. We cut to security, checking for WWF people trying to enter the building using horribly printed black and white headshots of McMahon, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and various members of DX. Guys, many of these people have actually worked for you at some point. Yeah. You should know what they look like. Yeah, just slap up a screenshot uh, from Starcade Night 24. Exactly. Yeah. Tony acknowledges, again, that they don't expect the challenge to be answered, but they continue wasting our time with a view of various building security cameras. They do actually catch a video of some quite dangerous driving at an intersection, though. Yes. Kind of like pulls out in the middle just as other cars coming up. They're about inches away from being able to provide very good testimony in traffic court. <laughs> yes. There's one point, I, maybe it's, I lost track of how bad the editing is, but I swear they show like the limo they've been watching like sitting at a light, and they cut something else, and they cut back to the same street, and it's just gone. <laughs> like, did it get abducted by aliens, or just bad to cut these shots together? I don't know. It's a ninja limo. Yeah. We cut to Saturn talking with Lee Marshall at the internet table. And let's check in with the web. You know, Saturn, I think back to Spring Stampede, you really gave Goldberg all they could handle at that time and here tonight at Slamboree. I'm going to presume you think you've got Goldberg figured out. Goldberg, at Spring Stampede, in my opinion, you squeaked right past me. Tonight's my opportunity to get the U.S. title. I'm prepared more than I was at Spring Stampede, and there's no way that I'm going to leave this building a loser tonight. Now, Lee, i got to get ready for my match. You know, Chad... He's been looking to they also uh, cut poor Lee off as he starts his next sentence. Yeah. <laughs> they fade away, fade out of the world. Where are <laughs> Yeah. It's almost as bad. What was it? Uh, Starcade 83, Gordon Soley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. <laughs> Show over. <laughs> Saturn's earlier promo tonight was career making, but this was just a generic promo. Not yeah. really necessary for it to be on the uh, even shown on the same show, I don't think. It, it is weird. You would, you would never guess you get two promos in the same show. Yeah. Tony goes over the matches that we've seen, but brings up the unanswered questions. Will Sting join the NWO if he and Giant win the tag titles? Will Scott Hall even show up? Tanae agrees that it's a difficult situation for Sting, but notes that Giant seemed very sure that they would win. Heenan wonders which path Sting will choose. Our sixth match, though, is Ultimo Dragon versus 
Eddie Guerrero with Chavo Guerrero Jr. for Chavo's Freedom from Eddie. The referee for this one is Charles Robinson. Tension had been brewing in the build-up to this between Eddie and Chavo. Eddie essentially wanted to be his mentor. Chavo basically, I don't need a mentor, because he's obviously a seasoned wrestler at this point, and he'd done a brand of Eddie's cheating ways. Obviously, he'd get, he'd get over that in years go by. Yes. <laughs> uh, so they had a match building up to this where Chavo agreed if he lost, he would study under Eddie, you know, essentially be his helper, valet, if it were. Chavo, of course, lost. That's why we have this match here. So Eddie had been berating and abusing Chavo, and Chavo had been taking it, but clearly getting more and more flustered and frustrated by it as time goes by. In the meantime, Ultima Dragon would come out after a match and stand up for Chavo, which puts in the middle of a family situation, which is a little tricky, but gives us this match, so it's worth it. Okay. So the, uh, the stipulation on this match is if Dragon wins, then Chavo is let out of his verbal contract with Eddie. Correct. Dragon is in green tonight, which is the most traditionally dragon-y of his outfits. True. It also looks awesome. It does. Chavo comes out, having been forced to wear a shirt reading, Eddie Guerrero is my favorite wrestler. Mm-hmm. A dude in the crowd holds up a sign with a picture of Chavo that reads, Free at last. Eddie actually points it out to Chavo, then rips it from the guy's hands and tears it up. <laughs> Amusingly, the guy tries to get the nearby cop to do something about it. Fortunately, the cop is aware of kayfabe. Yes. <laughs> we get some rapid counters, and Dragon does a high-angle snapmare that sends Eddie sliding across the ring and outside. Eddie claims Dragon pulled his hair and even demonstrates it on Robinson. <laughs> I, like, I like to hope that he let him know he's going to do that. Dragon Robinson seems really confused. It's like he's getting head grabbed by Eddie yes. Guerrero. <laughs> what the hell? I think you, as a ref, you kind of got to be ready for anything, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, true. <laughs> Eddie twists the Dragon armbar around into a pin for two, and they hit an amazing sequence of flips and rolls until Eddie counters Dragon kicks with a drop kick. Eddie lands strikes but Dragon does a handstand kick and an inverted head scissors off of the turnbuckle, then a vicious kick combo. Eddie flees, but Chavo tells him, get back in there. <laughs> back in, Dragon lands kicks and slaps on a half-crab and a bridging STF, but the crowd is distracted by a large fellow removing his shirt. Mm-hmm. Beer sales are good today, I guess. Evidently. <laughs> yeah. Eddie pokes the eyes to take over, and a high-velocity clothesline knocks Dragon flat. Suplex by Eddie for two. Eddie flings Dragon out, and the guy with the torn poster holds up its remains as Eddie chokes Dragon with a TV cable. Chavo protests, and Tony wonders what would happen if Eddie got disqualified. Because that's a pretty good question. Is Chavo's promise like a title where Eddie keeps it if he's disqualified or counted out? Yeah, I would assume a normal loss would be a loss, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie slaps Chavo and puts Dragon back in and up top. But Dragon crotches him and shakes the ropes, then lands a nasty kick to send him outside. Asai moonsault, but Dragon lands hard too, so Chavo fans him with a towel. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Back in, Dragon hits a kind of spinning rib breaker to a big reaction from fans and commentators alike for two. The commentary team is all like shocked by that move. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a tricky move. It's like a Argentinian backbreaker or something like that. Yeah. Like a weird. And he, he really picks him up quite smoothly into it. Yeah. Like, Considering the strength that had to take to hold him in that weird position, Mm -hmm. it's like it gets him up there good. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Moonsault for two, but Eddie hits Chavo's own Tornado DDT. But Dragon dodges a frog splash and uses La Magistral Cradle for two. Asai moonsault again, but Eddie catches him. 
A dragon floats over and latches on the dragon sleeper. Eddie uses the ropes to flip himself over into his own dragon sleeper. Dragon's down, and Eddie uses the ropes, but Chavo shoves his feet off. Eddie slaps Chavo, but Chavo finally stands up to him. Dragon tries a spinning wheel kick, but Eddie ducks, and Dragon nails Chavo. Distraught, Dragon is easy prey for an Eddie brain buster and frog splash for the three count and the win. Chavo gets in, but he's too late to stop it, and throws Eddie away from Dragon. Chavo loses it, angrily stomping around, but finally snaps and goes after Dragon, stomping away at him and yelling angrily as he repeatedly slaps and kicks him. Eddie actually pulls Chavo away and slaps him. This was my out, Chavo yells, and Eddie kneels down and challenges Chavo to slap him. Chavo is tempted, but he won't break his promise. Eddie stands and points at his cheek, and Chavo grimaces, but finally kisses his uncle on the cheek. Eddie gives us a cocky grin. Tony notes that not only is Chavo stuck with Eddie, but he's probably made an enemy in Ultimo Dragon after that post-match beatdown. I'd say so, yes. It is interesting. Uh, they, I think they say it on commentary that Eddie is Chavo's uncle, but they're only like two years apart, actually. Correct, yes. Yeah. So they actually grew up like brothers rather than <laughs> rather than uncle and nephew. Yeah. As opposed to Eddie's actual brother, who looks identical to him. <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, thoughts on this one? Going this match, I know it's Eddie Guerrero and Ultima Dragon. So obviously, expectation is pretty high. <laughs> yes. Thankful they actually deliver here. Mm-hmm. I was one of the ones where I'm afraid they're not going to, but I guess I shouldn't doubt Eddie Guerrero, especially at this point in his career. No, yeah. He, it's a pretty safe bet. Yeah, he he and Dragon both are incredibly reliable wrestlers. Oh, yeah. Eddie, I would say, especially since he has such a strong character work as well. Yeah. That's the thing for me. Eddie really, really plays a good heel here. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting, be interesting challenge, like who's the more despicable heel on this show, Eddie Guerrero or Chris Jericho? Yes. It's a good running to be in, for sure. <laughs> Eddie does so many little things throughout the match itself. It's always a shame we don't get a promo from him building up this match. I will agree, yes. Maybe you got a quick promo from him instead of repeating the Saturn promo. Been yes. nice. That'd been good. Yeah, I think having Eddie and honestly hearing from Chavo as well would be cool. Or maybe have them turn to Chavo and Eddie not let him speak or something like that would be. Yeah, yeah, for just sure. Something something to play up that storyline just a tad more. I think would be nice for sure. Yeah. Technically, this match is really good. Obviously, both of them are so good. They you know, the moves right. They have the timing. If you really get nitpicked, the first time Eddie does the frog splash, he clearly was not going to hit Dragon. He was a good foot past him. Which is fine, because obviously the Musta looks good, but otherwise, yeah, that's, that's kind of thing that happens when you have them wrestling, you have to go, or a good DP earlier. It's like, yeah. this is one little thing, it's not 100% correct, it's 98% correct, so, you know, you had to point it out, but not really. It's a little harder to tell with Eddie's Frog Splash than it is with, uh, what was it, Damien's Moonsault before, mm. where it's just like, roughly three quarters of the ring away from the guy he was aiming at. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. The Chavo storyline played really well, I thought. He is a little bit free interference, but he never really affects the match that much until mm-hmm. the end. And that felt really natural to me, the way he comes up there and he gets hit, and that allows the yeah. advantage. He's involved in terms of, like, cheering, Yeah, but he never actually does something in the match. Yeah. The most he does to help Dragon is stopping him from cheating that one right. point, pushing his feet at the road, which is probably natural to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a really good match. Yeah, I agree. Very, very nice match with a mix of great acrobatics and some really good counter-wrestling. Eddie and Dragon kept up a really fast pace the whole way through, 
and they mixed in a great variety of strikes, holds, throws, and dives, and made good use of the entire ring and ringside area to ensure that what we were watching was always fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some flat-out amazing moments, most notably that flipping dragon sleeper counter oh, yeah. sequence. Chavo's involvement was minimal, but he added some depth to the match beyond just the in-ring action, and I liked how the finish turned a moment that was a cause for cheers, Chavo finally willing to just stand up to Eddie mm. into disaster. Yeah. Chavo's post-match outburst is really interesting, too. It's emotional and born of understandable frustration, but it still leaves you with questions about where Chavo's going to go from here. Yeah. Will his anger lead him to dishonor, or is this just a singular moment? Mm-hmm. Blip. It's a fun match with a lot of potential story paths. Yeah, absolutely. The tension between Eddie and Chavo obviously still building, and would culminate in a match between the two of them and the next pay-per-view, the Great American Bash. Okay. Dragon situation is kind of interesting. So if you notice, Dragon had a he had a red uh, elbow pad on. Apparently, he'd suffered a minor arm injury before this. Wow! In the build up to this, um, I don't think it's that serious, obviously. But enough that he's wearing the pat, he's wearing the elbow brace. Mm-hmm. You can see, it's only because he's he's wearing an all green up and he has a red elbow piece on. Oh, okay. So apparently, he, a little after this, he went to get surgery to fix it. It, depending on who you ask, it didn't go well. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, it's debatable whether it's medical malpractice. Obviously, that's a whole legal thing. But it was enough that he temporarily retired from the ring. Oh, wow. Obviously, he got better because he yes. wrestled. I think he still wrestles now. But yeah, there's a brief period of time. This seems to be the end of his WCW run, at least notable periods anyways. Okay. It's a shame that we don't get to see something come of the Chavo and Dragon storyline then. But, I mean, if you have to pick a match to go out on for your career in a company, this is a pretty darn good one. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We cut backstage to a dressing room bearing a star and a sign reading Vince McMahon, the reason for the ratings. Let's move on. (laughs) Yeah. Our seventh match is Saturn versus Goldberg in a non-gauntlet match for Goldberg's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Mickey J. So as noted, the... U.S. title was won by Raven at Spring Stampede show against DDP. The night afterwards, he would then lose it to Goldberg. So actually, if you think about it, it's kind of interesting how that story plays out. I don't know if it's actually their plan or not, but Goldberg beat Saturn, obviously, in a non-title match on Spring Stampede the night before winning the title. So now we're at the point where Saturn is challenging Goldberg for the title. It's kind of interesting how that plays out. Yeah, yeah, true. It could could be coincidence, but I kind of like to think at least that was intentional on their part. Obviously, as we noted in the promos, he's apparently just unilaterally canceled the gauntlet match. <laughs> Which sadly means we don't get to see Goldberg fight Reese. I know. The real real downside of the show. I, I, I will say I'm I'm sad for not getting to see Goldberg fight Kidman. Sure. Because that'd be interesting if it was allowed to go for more than 10 seconds. Which I, probably would be. Yeah. The match was going to be like, there was going to be all the other flock people like... Uh, Sick Boy and um, Scotty Riggs, that thing is still there. Yes, with an eye patch. Yes. <laughs> okay, injured, became a pirate. That's just what yeah. we do. Does he climb the Riggsing? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Saturn walks out to siren heavy music, wearing his hoodie, which has several holes, maybe shops at the same place as Kidman. Yeah, there you go. Goldberg's music plays for a considerable amount of time before he comes out. I guess they haven't worked out yet that they need to film him walking all the way from backstage. Yeah. Yeah, say we, we don't get the security guards, do we? No, no. 
Not yet. He does get his usual sparklers, though, standing yeah. in their midst, which is always a super cool shot. Yeah. And the uppercut's invisible people in front of him as he goes down yes. as well. Both guys are big, muscly, tanned, mostly bald, and wearing black. Thankfully, Saturn is wearing shorts instead of trunks, or I might have had real trouble telling them apart in the long-distance shots. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> Saturn starts off well with some fast wrestling, but Goldberg overpowers him and uses a couple military press drops, hefting Saturn with ease and a charging clothesline. Saturn rolls out, and Goldberg follows, and Saturn ambushes him coming back in, landing strikes, until Goldberg counters a charge with a reverse spin kick. Saturn sweeps his legs out from under him and slaps him. Heenan asks why anyone would ever slap Goldberg. <laughs> As Saturn indeed learns his lesson via some particularly vicious Goldberg punches. Yes. <laughs> Saturn retreats outside and dodges a punch, so Goldberg hits the ring post. Saturn sends him to the post again and hits a running dropkick from the apron to the floor. Saturn sends Goldberg back in and hits a top rope spinning wheel kick. For one. Another and Saturn tries a sleeper hold, but Goldberg wrenches his arms free and hits a belly-to-belly -belly suplex. Saturn neckbreaker, but Goldberg starts to get up, so Saturn uses a chin lock into a suplex attempt, but Goldberg counters with a swinging neckbreaker. Saturn dodges a charge and hits a suplex, and retrieves a chair. He sets up the chair, and springboard dropkicks Goldberg in the back, and cockily takes a seat. But Goldberg is up. Saturn tries another springboard, but Goldberg spears him in midair. Jackhammer, three count, and it's over. Goldberg wins. Goldberg poses with the belt as Saturn beats a hasty retreat. In one of the replays, we get a great shot of Goldberg spearing Saturn out of midair, then doing a short jump to roar and pose, and accidentally crushing the still-standing chair with one foot in the process. Yes. To his credit, he does not let that shake him one bit. No. I would have been busting a gut laughing if that happened yeah, to me. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, yeah. Uh, thoughts on this one? This seems like a really polished version of the, at least the big profile Goldberg match. Because, mm -hmm. especially... For me, watching some of his squash matches on Nitro, he definitely beats Jerry Flynn, for instance. It's yes. Big challenge. <laughs> if we hadn't gotten to the point where he goes outside and then the match turns, that basically would have been your standard Goldberg squash match. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like that he teased that and then get past it quickly by having Saturn take over and then get oh, gets fairly competitive, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just nice. They make a good point in commentary about how Goldberg's only had, at this point, 87 matches, which... To me, sounds like a lot, but obviously, long-term, that's not that many. I right, when you're looking at people wrestling for years uh, and generally weekly, true, that builds up really, really fast. Yeah. So, yeah, that actually is, in, in wrestling terms, that's a rookie's numbers. Right, right, right. So, they make a good point of that. Uh, he, you know, he's always been so dominant, so, so strong and powerful. He is still a rookie, so he falls for stuff like Saturn's tricks. Mm-hmm. I also like, they, they kind of try to defend the Saturn slap by saying it's part of his strategy is always getting in the mindset of the opponent, like getting in their head. Obviously, it backfired. Yeah. It at least doesn't make sense. They do something that objectively looks stupid to us <laughs> to challenge Goldberg like that. Yeah. And you can kind of see it as going along with uh, him dodging and getting him to punch the post later that he's trying to make him too angry to think straight. Yeah. But the unfortunate thing with doing that to Goldberg is he also becomes angry enough to pound your face into the Right, punch. yeah. So. <laughs> He'll catch 22 situations. Yeah. yeah. If you do that to like, I don't know, a Sting or a Lex Luger or somebody that is not inclined to pound your face into a fine mist. Yes. 
you, you might come out of that more okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ultimately, there was no question, obviously, Goldberg was going to win. But I like that Saturn, at least for brief moments here and there, made it seem like maybe he wasn't going to. Right, yeah. It, I think Saturn gets a good amount of offense and really gets to like show off what he can do. Mm-hmm. I think they they did a good job overall building this. Where like you, like you said, it it kind of it feels inevitable, but it doesn't feel totally inevitable. Yeah, the middle point feels like maybe they could surprise you and have him. Yeah, which I think is where you want to be with Goldberg at this point. You don't want it to feel absolutely one hundred percent certain on every match. You want it to feel like ninety percent certain with that. Yeah, yeah. Match. Except, unless, unless you're just throwing him out to beat up a guy in ten seconds, just right. to fill time. Yeah, you want that. Sure. Yeah, I thought this was really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Very high-impact offense from both of them. Goldberg does does a great job of looking like a supernatural movie monster, relentlessly stalking his prey and roaring and springing up almost instantly anytime he's actually taken off his feet for a moment. Mm-hmm. But I love that Saturn actually starts incorporating that into his offense. So as soon as he sees Goldberg starting to spring up and he dives on immediately to put on another yeah, yeah, as fast as he can to stop the rapid comeback. Goldberg has just explosive power, and Saturn's an excellent choice for his opponent, able to pull in some more complex spots and acrobatics while still looking the appropriate size to be facing Goldberg. Yeah. You know, he's an acrobatic guy that doesn't look small. For sure, yeah. The ending's appropriately sudden and great, and it fits both characters. Goldberg's rapid recoveries and Saturn's slowly glowing confidence, which turns out to be overconfidence. Yes. It's a cool match in the rise of Goldberg, and it's just a bit of a shame that it has to happen the same night that Saturn had that great, like, career-making promo. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to see him get the chance to build off that more, but you can't sacrifice Goldberg to do that at this point. For sure. Curiously, uh, in the weeks building up to the next review, there'd be a brief view between Saturn and Glacier, of all people. (laughs) So, apparently, Glacier cut a promo complaining about people stealing his move. That being the Koranic kick, which is a... The big sidekick. The big sidekick, yeah. yeah. And Saturn does do that in this match, yes. I believe, yeah. Yes. Weirdly, they let Saturn kind of shoot, I think, too far in the promo because he complains about how everyone does a, how most people do a sidekick and you're just a video game ripoff character, which you really shouldn't say out loud. Yeah, that's, I believe, admissible <laughs> in court as evidence. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that, that part, too. But really, you don't want to break the character down that much if right. you're still going to use him. He would, by the way, lose to Goldberg on the next show. Oh. A nitro. <laughs> Again, shockingly, Glacier did not break the streak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as Goldberg, uh, as US champion, obviously, he's an important character. So he'd be stuck in the middle of the NWO Wolfpack and Hollywood feud, where he'd be challenged by Conan for the US title. Okay, I guess we can predict the ending on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Raven narrates our Great American Bash promo this time, surrounded by the flock, which I think actually includes Saturn at it that does. point in there, yes. which is weird. Uh-huh. My misspent youth didn't include family picnics, baseball games, hot dogs and apple pie. What is this useless American pastime? Times have changed. Forget tradition. There's a new pastime. Castrol presents WCW NWO Great American Bash. Sunday, June 14th, live and only on pay-per-view. Call your cable or satellite company to order now. See, folks, have more picnics or your kids are going to turn out like Raven. Yeah. I mean, granted, you wear a cool shirt for bands, but you'll also be Raven. Kind of weird. The narrator tells us to forget tradition in the end when... All last year's show, they were harping on how great tradition was and how we needed to uphold it. 
What's well, the grim and gritty '90s? Everything's bad. I guess. Guess so. That. The logo with the circling stars is pretty cool, though. Yeah. Our eighth match is Eric Bischoff versus Vince McMahon. The referee for this one is Mickey J. On the go-home Nitro, Eric Bischoff comes out and abruptly challenges Vince McMahon to a match this Sunday at Sambury, which seems like not enough notice for this kind of thing to happen. Yeah. For one thing. To get how we got here, you have to go back a little ways. So a few notable things happened in the lead-up to this. Firstly, we had Stone Cold Steve Austin with the title of WrestleMania 14. The following Raw with, the, with him on there broke the 83-week streak of Nitro winning every time. I forgot that was, yeah, that would be this year. Uh-huh, it's this year, yeah, yeah. Obviously, Bischoff not happy about that. He's also not happy about X-Pac returning and cutting a kayfabe shattering promo complaining about how Hall Natural held hostage, how, you know, he held him back and everything. He, of course, complains about that on Nitro, says that he apologizes to nobody, which is definitely not true, but I guess it's a whole thing to say, at least. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happened is, of course, we had the quote-unquote DX invasion of Nitro. Right. Or as most people forget, the multiple attempts at a invasion of Nitro. Isn't there one where, like, Triple H pilots a fighter jet or something? It's implied, yes. <laughs> yeah. So the story that's always told is they, even by them in their video packages, that they drove a tank to Nitro. They drove a truck that had a small gun in the back, which I think is from, like, World War II. But, you know, and they sort of sat outside Nitro. Though what's funny is, so, bearing that in mind, as part of the shoot promo Bischoff cut for this match, he complains about how, you know, they show up at the office, we know I'm not going to be there, so you know I won't come out to confront you. As if he would come out on, on Raw to yell at them. Yeah. Same way Vince is, no way Vince is coming to Slamboree. He also says, you go somewhere where you know I'm not going to be. I'm like, wait a second. They're literally outside Nitro. Yeah, they went to Nitro while the show was going on. <laughs> Why would they not expect you to be at Nitro? Is that a... Is, are you telling I, I, us too I much? Think, I, th- I think we would expect you to be at Nitro. Yeah. yeah. It's literally your job to be at Nitro. So it's either a dumb statement, or he's giving him it away about how he's not at the show. Which yeah. I, no, no one's good. Yeah. But yeah, so this is his big plan to pop the buy rate by telling people Vincent McMahon won't show up. But watch so anyways. See if he'll show up. <laughs> it's really strange. So, so I dubbed this the Eric Bischoff's Fragile Ego Match. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Very accurate. Michael Buffer does the introductions, calling the participants the most powerful men in professional wrestling today. Just kind of interesting that they are actually rather complimentary of Vince mm-hmm. uh, during all of this. I guess Eric might see him as a worthy rival. Yeah. I guess you better see him as a worthy rival if he's currently beating you. Yes. <laughs> and the logic is if, if you're losing to someone that's equal to you, that makes you look stronger as well. True. Eric struts out, dubbed the man who fired the shot heard round the world. McMahon is dubbed a man who considers himself the most important star of the WWF. He doesn't show, obviously. Buffer announces him again as the man who has accepted this challenge, which is just blatantly wrong if he's not even here. Correct. Again, nobody comes out. Bischoff looks disbelieving, somehow, and grabs a microphone. Bischoff asks if it's a sanctioned event or not. The ref confirms it is. Bischoff asks where McMahon is. The ref says he doesn't know. Bischoff asks what they do. The ref says they ring the bell and count to ten. Bischoff repeats that for the crowd and has the crowd count along with the ref. Buffer even joins in. Mm-hmm. 
The bell rings, and Bischoff is declared the winner by forfeit and disqualification, which are not really things that can combine. Yes. <laughs> also, you don't, you don't have to count to 10 for a forfeit. No. If you're not there, you're not or there. Or a disqualification. You count to 10 for a countout. Correct. <laughs> yes. Bischoff does victory punches and kicks in the direction of the camera, which do admittedly look nice, but then he can expend all the energy he wants since he's not actually having a match. That's true. Thoughts on this one? Lame from beginning to end. This is my summary. It's just, it's too drawn out for something that's a non-event. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have just come out on stage and said, this man's not showing up. And it's, I mean, you have wasted all time already, but doing this whole facade is just so dumb. Yeah, this is just blatantly something they should never have done. Yes. There is no way to do it well. No. There's ways to do it better, but there's no way to do it well. I'll agree with that. This is indication that no one in the backstage has the guts to tell Eric Bischoff no. Correct. That's a big thing. So he wins via forfeit and disqualification. So how does the last one happen? I don't know, but I assume that means that he does not, in fact, gain Vince McMahon's uh, title as best company boss. Correct. <laughs> My theory was that Vince's ego somehow punched the ref. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Other than that, I have no idea how he wins via DQ. The crowd seems bizarrely into it, but yeah, this was an absolute waste of time and existed just to pad Bischoff's fragile ego. It's shocking how much time was dedicated to this farce on this show, not just in the actual match time, but through more buildup throughout a night than I've seen for most world title matches. Yes. It's pointless and stupid and should not have been on any show. If you're going to do something this stupid, and you shouldn't, obviously, but if some reason you're convinced you have to have your boss call call out the other boss and he's not going to show up, it clearly gets a weird reaction from the crowd really into this. Do it at a house show. Yeah. Where nobody's the easy internet, it'll be reported. You can go, hey, I, you know, Vince McMahon did show up to a house show when I won, blah, blah, blah. But you wouldn't waste time for that are paying to watch this. I'm shocked they didn't bring out Vincent to have him pin Vincent. Oh, my goodness. That's true. I mean, that's who he's named for. Yeah, that's true. And they're also in NWO. It's not like he's a face who would refuse it. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't talk about that. Notably, they did later have a fight on Raw. Of course, that was after Vince bought WCW and owned Eric's contract. So I hope you enjoyed the ego stroking while you had it, Eric. Yes. <laughs> and in fact, when Bischoff would leave WWE and his contract ended, he would be uh, kicked out of the company by Judge Vince McMahon on Raw uh, and thrown into the back of a dumpster and driven out of the arena. <laughs> Which I guess is how he entered sold out in 97. So that's kind of fitting. Isn't it? <laughs> True. Tony and Heenan do at least give us a good gag about sending someone to get them the food that had been brought in for McMahon's dressing room. There you go. <laughs> at this point with Nitro, the NBA playoffs are happening, which is mostly why Hogan's not a many of the Nitro, because he famously would skip playoff Nitros and come back when they're over and go, look at the ratings came up when I, w- when I came back. He's not a stupid man. You know, you yeah. can say a lot about things, but he's very smart. Yeah. So the May 18th Nitro, the one following this show, all they can get in the time slot, because the playoffs are going on, is an hour-long Nitro. So, bearing that in mind, we have a roughly 10-minute segment where Bishop comes out to the ring recycle, brags about being 2-0 and on pay-per-view. So, first off... Wait, he lost match, the other one. He lost, correct. Yeah. <laughs> and which color commentator Larry Zabisco, who won that match, is oddly silent until the promo is over, which is weird. <laughs> Like, Bischoff says, you can't interrupt my promo on commentary, but you can dispute it after I'm done talking, apparently. <laughs> Took him that long to remember, I guess. Yeah. 
So the show's only an hour, and he wasted all that time saying he won and then leaves. Yeah, wastes waste a sixth of the show on a match that shouldn't have happened in the first place. Pretty much, yeah. Great. We go right to our ninth match, which is Brett the Hitman Hart versus the Macho Man Randy Savage in a grudge match from hell. The referee for this one is Rowdy Roddy Piper. Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff, so I'll try and be as concise as I can with this. On pay-per-view, Randy Savage wins the title from Sting as part of this whole beginning of this storyline with the NWO having trouble. On the following Nitro, he is challenged for the title by his, technically his boss, Hulk Hogan. Now, mind you, during that match, he shoved off the top rope through interference and tears his ACL. Ooh. Yeah. So he goes to the next Nitro uh, against Hogan. There's a ton of interference, including Kevin Nash coming out and powerbombing Hogan. That's part of that split. Mm-hmm. But then the big shock is Bret Hart shows up and hits him with the belt, allowing Hogan to pin him. Bret Hart is now a heel, and he hates everybody, and they waste a lot of time teasing him coming out to say why he did it. Does he at least give us a savage screwed savage? He does not. Oh, that dang it, Bret. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was probably too fresh for him at the time. That's probably true, yeah. So in a promo that they repeated multiple times on replays, Randy Savage says that Bret Hart is, quote, on his intergalactic hit list. <laughs> Which is a truly Randy Savage thing to say. <laughs> that, is a, that is about the most Randy Savage of the Randy Savage ways to say something. Yes. Oh, yeah. Hard to heal. However, he is not part of the NWO. If you know, he was not on my list right. of members. He apparently helps recruit people for the NWO, but never actually joins the group as part of the storyline. They would have made him give up his jacket, I bet. And Right. Yeah. You know, y- you are not giving up that jacket. You can't. Yeah. Awesome jacket. That's true. <laughs> They went like, can you just spray paint it white? No. <laughs> Extremely no. I want to fight a pirate over this jacket. <laughs> Which is true. Um, that's part of the, you know, the, now they're angry at each other. And in fact, on the final Nitro before this, Hogan would come on there on the final one and he would accept a challenge from Ray Savage for a world title rematch. Where Bret Hart would interfere again and cost him the title. Just a drive the nail in a little bit deeper huh? yeah it's already dagger right back why don't you step on a couple more times yeah <laughs> curiously they mentioned this being the first time this match has happened it's not they wrestled on a Saturday night mid event okay Hart's WCW theme is a terrible pale imitation of his WWF's theme yes that sounds like the soundtrack to a crappy Halloween themed music video <laughs> it does it does that is awesome jacket, though. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like his sunglasses as well in WCW. It doesn't have the like cool, like kind of pink tone mirror yeah, shades. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's just like little circle sunglasses that still look neat, but mm-hmm. it's just another way that the WCW Bret Hart is not Bret Hart. Yeah, it's <laughs> close, but not quite there. Yeah. A guy in the crowd has a Hollywood Hogan costume and wears large fake Hogan arms. Mm. Looks really weird. Yeah. Oddly, special referee Roddy Piper comes out second. Oh, yeah. That's true. Very cool shirt with the Tasmanian devil on it in a kilt. I kind of want to have that shirt. I, I kind of want that shirt, too. <laughs> I hope that that's, like, sold on a wrestling t-shirt site or something somewhere. Yeah. Because it's great. Mm-hmm. Savage is out next without any of his usual entrance regalia. NWO theme count, two. Despite being part of the NWO here, Savage is effectively the face because Hart is working with the evil Hogan. Correct. <laughs> 
Hart retreats outside right away, so Piper throws him in. Savage attacks, but Hart stuns him with a headbutt and punches him around the ring, dazing him so much he swipes at Piper by mistake. Hart and Savage both choke each other, but Savage breaks earlier on Piper's counts. Savage gets two off a clothesline, but after a Hart suplex and a low headbutt, Savage rolls out. Hart flings the ring steps at Savage, but Savage dodges and throws him into the steps. They are not braced against the ring, so that disqualifies it from receiving a Cena scale score. Fair enough. Improper technique. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hart throws Savage over the barricade. Savage hurls him into a wall, then back over the barricade. Back in, Hart kicks Savage in the knee, which was injured prior to the match, and bears a brace. Hart works over the knee with kicks, elbow drops, leg wrenches, and more, as Savage writhes in pain. Tony lets us know that Scott Hall has finally arrived in the building. A fan wearing an NWO Wolfpack shirt flips Hart off. Hart hits a Russian leg sweep, then gets two counts off a pile driver and DDT, covering arrogantly and wasting time. He complains about Piper's counting, but Piper notes, justly, that he's being very consistent. Hart backbreaker, but Savage dodges a second rope elbow, bounces on one foot, and lands an elbow drop, then uses a suplex and masterfully shifts all his weight to his good leg to do it. Nice. Savage up top for the big elbow, but he lands on his knee and writhes in pain before he is able to crawl on top for two and three quarters. Hart takes him down into the sharpshooter as we see Miss Elizabeth running down, and Savage gets Hart's leg and trips him to counter into his own sharpshooter. Awesome spot there. Mm -hmm. Hart makes the ropes, and Piper forces a break. Elizabeth argues with Piper, and Savage argues with Piper for arguing with Elizabeth. Logical. Piper orders Savage to get back to fighting and turns to order Elizabeth out, but Hart kicks Savage low, then slugs Piper from behind with a fist load. Piper goes down, and Hart tries for Savage, but Savage blocks and gets the weapon. Savage sulks Hart, who begs for mercy, but Hogan runs down to ringside and trips Savage, then throws his leg into the ring post. Hart slaps on the sharpshooter as Piper wakes. Piper starts to check the hold but notices the weapon still on Savage's hand, and angrily disqualifies Savage. Savage actually starts tapping out as the bell rings, but I'm still going to call it a disqualification victory for Hart. Piper raises Hart's hand in victory so we can hear Hart's horrible WCW theme again. (laughs) Hart spits on Savage and celebrates, then stares Elizabeth down as he leaves. Elizabeth goes to the ring to check on Savage, as we see replays of the cheap shot on Piper, Hogan's run-in, and Hart putting on the sharpshooter, and, oddly, Hogan crawling up the entrance ramp. No, really, crawling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He crawled like a lizard person, it's really weird. Yeah, it was very strange. Thoughts on this one? So I sort of hinted this earlier with the Malenko-Jericho match. This is the other match that really is a tale of two matches put together, Mm -hmm. and like the Dragon-Guerrero match... With people involved, even considering age and time, because obviously Savage has had a lot of knee issues in his at this point in his career, especially very recently, as I noted, my expectations are pretty high for this match. The first part of the match is kind of disappointing to me because it's fairly nothing brawling. Mm-hmm. It's done well, but it's just not what you expect from the quote-unquote first Randy Savage Bret Hart match. Yeah, you expect more than just kind of substandard stuff like that. Thankfully, one thing at the end of the ring. It gets a lot better. Yep. For sure. I have almost exactly that written. Yeah, yeah, it gets yeah. a lot better after the outside brawl. Yeah. <laughs> Savage, as we've known many times before, is like DDP with his insane level of preparation. Which, by the way, we recently confirmed on the A&E special. Steve actually shows the notes 
that he has them still. Very Puts cool. Puts me at three. So he he shows the pictures of him. He has a number and everything. Nice. You have like spot 149 is where I pin him. Yeah. Official documentation is really cool for that as a side note. I look forward to an eventual DDP documentary where we can finally get confirmation on his. That'd be really <laughs> nice too. Yeah. The Piper stuff's pretty good. Um, they get a little complicated with the whole swim interfering and then hits him and then he thinks Savage did it. It all kind of works, but it's a lot. It's a lot of things going on at once. Yeah, it probably took up about like five pages in Savage's script. Yes, but I actually do think for me that really, really worked because it's so particularly choreographed that you can actually buy Piper misunderstanding. No, yeah, no, it works in that regard. You know, he's arguing with Savage before he turns around. Savage is someone he doesn't trust anyway because yes. you know NWO. Right. Uh, he's arguing with Elizabeth, which he knows is something that would cause Savage to be angry. Mm-hmm. And then he gets clocked from behind. And then he, when he finally looks again, Savage is the guy with the weapon. All the circumstantial evidence points there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one, this one match where Piper, the the first of the I Quit match, I believe, in WF with Piper as a referee. Yes. A lot of people think he kind of overshadows the match by constantly getting their face go, what do you say? You know, that he thankfully much more subdued here. He's a good, he's a good guest referee. I, I think he does a good job. He's like, he's slightly more confrontational than a normal ref would be. And he actually just like physically throws them into the ring yeah. occasionally, but he doesn't make the match about himself. Correct. You know, so this, this is actually a, one of the better guest referee performances I've seen from a wrestler. It's, yeah, it's a good use of him as well, because we really don't want him wrestling that much at this point, because his, mm-hmm. his hips are shot as well. Yeah. You know? But yeah, no, I, I, I found this, because normally when you get the guest referee storyline with a wrestler, it's um, him already part of the feud himself, yeah. and therefore just blatantly acting like a horrible referee and yeah. you know cheating on behalf of one of the others or just i think stone cold would often stunner both of them and leave yes. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but with piper he just really goes in there is like no i'm going to do a good referee job yeah and the only difference between me and a normal ref is that i'm going to be slightly harder to knock out and i will actually physically interpose myself mm-hmm. to separate you two if i feel like i need to yeah piper's given a little, a little bit of the story in the build-up uh, he's basically the disappointed uncle, as far as Bret Hart goes. Yeah. Because they have, they have a whole familiar relationship, as people yes. probably know by now, through the Hart Dungeon. So he's disappointed, and then obviously he doesn't trust Savage because of everything there. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. To your point, he's not at the point where he's blatantly helping one over the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think up until the point where they come back in after their outside brawl, this had pretty much just been the two of them doing an okay fist fight and choking each other. Yeah. But when they came back from outside, it became a tightly focused match. Mm-hmm. They made great use of Savage's knee injury story. I really liked how intensely that was involved, not only as a point for Hart to turn things around at a moment's notice, but even stopping Savage's big elbow from winning the match. Yeah. Because he's reeling in pain and can't cover until it's too late. Mm-hmm. This match worked quite well once they came back into the ring. Uh, it's a shame that it took it so long to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only point that's a little confusing with the second half of the match is they seem to be doing a disqualification, but also do Savage tapping anyway. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm not sure why you do both. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> that's true. But yeah, I, I think once they got back in the ring, it became what you expect from Savage versus Hart. Mm-hmm. It just, it takes too long to get to that point. So you're forced to deal with kind of a really boring first half mm. and then suddenly it's like if you're still awake here's a good match yeah yeah <laughs> i will say it's kind of funny uh few years after it happened to see brett kick uh savage's leg out of his leg <laughs> and revenge yeah I, w- I was flashing back to the uh heart versus austin 
what is it, mm. Mania 13, is it? Mania 13, yep. They do that really excellently with the knee storyline with Austin there, where he'll be fighting back against Hart, but then Hart, all he has to do is go, dink, right into the yes. knee, and Austin just like goes, oh my god, and falls With one kick, yeah. 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 So they, they get a little bit of that here, which is nice. Yeah. So the following Nitro, there's a long interview segment. It's kind of confusing. I think the issue of Piper being really amped up in typical Piper fashion. So he comes out, talking about the match, says he's still mad at Savage, he still thinks Savage hit him from behind. But then when Savage and Hart are both out there, he says, oh, by the way, I know you didn't hit me from behind. And reverses the decision. Reversing the DQ, so we're... <laughs> Were you trying to trick them? Why did, did you forget your line? <laughs> I don't you know. These you things. never know sometimes with Piper, yeah. right? He's like, he gets so charged up, yeah. he just says things. He blatantly says he still thinks Savage hit him from behind, but then later says, oh, I know you didn't hit him from behind, so I'm reversing the decision. This would lead to a curious tag match at the Grand American Bash, where it's Randy Savage and Roddy Piper, obviously, still not getting along that well, against the kind of curious team of Hulk Hogan and Bret Hart. I mean, it makes sense storyline-wise, but that is one of those tag teams you never thought would happen, yes. right? <laughs> it's booked as a fairly straight tag match, but there is one uh, condition to it. If the team of Hogan and Hart win, there must be a follow-up match immediately after with Savage and Piper fighting each other. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you're possibly getting two matches, although it's kind of weird that the heels are forced in the faces to fight each other when they don't like each other anyways. Now, do Savage and Piper get the same thing if Hogan and Bret I don't lose? believe so. Oh. <laughs> no, uh, famously, Hogan and Bret Hart is a match we're supposed to get in 1993, as everyone knows. Right. And we actually do get it for about five minutes on Nitro before they do a turn with Hart with the NWO. Okay. So it's one of the matches that technically does happen, but it's disappointing. Not, yeah, not People got to forget you... it happened. Yeah. Understandably so. Our final match is The Outsiders, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, with The American Dream, Dusty Rose, which is never not going to be weird, Mm -hmm. versus Sting and The Giant for The Outsiders WCW NWO Tag Team World Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Mark Curtis. We have the NWO splintering story, as mentioned. Seeing the Giant think it's a great time to go for the tag titles, take some of the power away from the NWO. However, as part of this whole thing where Nash comes out and introduces a new member, first Conan, then Kurt Hennig, Hogan has a similar thing when he makes his final appearance on that last Nitro, saying he has a big surprise to counter anything that Nash can do, which is the Giant, who comes out wearing black and white and beats up Kevin Nash. You only had to add the white. I mean, I always wear the black. True, yeah. <laughs> it is true. Of course, now the tricky thing is Sting is not part of the NWO, but his partner is, and they're challenging a different faction in the NWO. So where is Sting going to go, assuming they win the match? The whole thing is kind of weird. So he's been tag champion for a while now with Nash, but he like, is legitimately gone from TV. It's a little bit after, I think, Uncensored, where he challenges Sting for the title, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so, yeah. It's a kind of a mix of kayfabe and reality here. They played away in story by Kevin Nash saying that Hogan and Bishop used their power to keep Hall away from TV, which is odd for many reasons. Uh, there's some disputed aspects of that where Hall might have been sent to some form of rehab trying it better, mm-hmm. but it's so muddied with the reality and fantasy of wrestling at this point, it's hard to know, even 2021, what the actual story is. Yeah. Unfortunately. 
it's a somewhat convoluted storyline, but it is an interesting one. What's what's going on with Sting and the Giant? Yeah, that that would be an interesting choice to have to make. Wait, I'm about to try and win the tag titles with this guy, mm-hmm. but he's joined the faction that I hate. Yes, <laughs> I spent 18 months building up to beat them. So yeah, yes, yeah. Strangely, the outsiders come out first, despite being champs. There's no Wolfpack theme yet, so NWO theme count three. <laughs> They're the founding fathers of the New World Order and the keystone of the wolf pack, per buffer. It's super weird to see them escorted by Dusty, of all people, but at least he found a good use for his red leather jacket, mixing in with the wolf pack colors. Exactly. Hey, yo. Hall tells the crowd he missed them and gives a survey. In public, if you will. Nice touch bringing in the Dusty line. Mm-hmm. WCW gets booed, NWO gets cheered. Bad use of polling, as 538 would say, since the question does not specify which NWO faction. Correct. (laughs) Very true. Giant makes his entrance. NWO theme count, four. (laughs) Giant looks really smug. Oh, yeah. Tony says the NWO's bad, regardless of the colors they wear, but accidentally calls the colors black and white or red and white. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So close. Well, we would, like, when 1999, we could briefly get red and white together, though, with Hogan, remember? The unified version? Right, yeah. It's, it's, it's like one show. Sting makes his entrance to his tremendous dramatic orchestral theme and big fireworks. Heenan asks if we'll see an NWO shirt when Sting removes his coat, but Sting had his coat open for the whole entrance, so we can already see he's just wearing the usual Crow Sting gear. He could have been wearing a flesh-colored slash top-colored shirt to reveal that. You don't know. <laughs> Lots of crow sting mask on kids in the crowd. Even emo sting is super popular with the kids. Oh, yeah. Giant talks to Sting all pumped up as Sting just stares coldly at him. Tony says they've doubted Sting before, but he's always proved trustworthy in the end. Hall and Sting start. Hall flings his toothpick at Sting, who cross chops in response. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Hall works Sting's arm and Sting back elbows him, and Hall looks almost shocked. They block each other's hip tosses, but Hall chokeslams Sting, then mocks Giant with a Frankenstein's monster walk. Sting rapidly hits a face buster, two inverted atomic drops, and two Stinger splashes, then goes straight for the Scorpion Deathlock. Nash very hurriedly gets in, and Sting ducks a clothesline, then fights off both Wolfpack members alongside Giant. Nash and Hall retreat outside, where Rhodes gives them a pep talk. Sting tags Giant, and Giant mocks Hall's monster walk, so Hall does it again backwards to tag Nash. (laughs) Nash rapidly attacks and tries the jackknife powerbomb, but Giant lifts him and drives him into the turnbuckle. Tanay points out that both teams have tried to end this very fast with their finishers. Giant uses corner butt thumps, for lack of a better term. He even dances on the third. We get a let's go Wolfpack chant, but then Giant tags staying and the chant loses like half its volume immediately. (laughs) (laughs) The crowd does not want to root against Sting. (laughs) Yeah, right. Sting gets caught by a Nash big boot, and Nash and Hall trade off to wear him down, including a great crossbody catch into a fallaway slam by Hall for two with his feet on the ropes. Tony oddly claims that Giant doesn't care if Sting gets beaten up, right as Giant is leading the crowd to clap for Sting. (laughs) Timing is everything, yes. Curtis lectures Nash about choking, and while he's distracted, Hall clotheslines Sting, and then Curtis trips over Sting when, when he turns around. <laughs> Giant saves it by yelling at Curtis for stepping on Sting. Nice. 
It's like, you stepped on my body. <laughs> it's great. You can hear him bellow because he's the giant. Oh, yeah. Hall is tagged in, and he gets two, technically off of Curtis's trip, so Curtis is clearly the toughest man in the ring. That's true, yeah. Hall uses Nash for leverage on an abdominal stretch, but Curtis eventually catches him. We get a monster Nash side slam for two, and he catches a charging sting for an elevated bear hug, though sadly it becomes a boring normal one before too long. Yeah. Sting keeps his arm up on the third lift, gets free, and lunges for the corner, but Nash is in the way. But Sting manages to drive him back just enough to barely tag Giant. Mm. It's a cool spot. He, like, basically brushes his fingertips against Giant. Yeah. It helps when the guy has has arms as long as Giant. Yes, very true. Yeah. But it's really great timing and precision by all of them involved in that spot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. had to get exactly the right position for it. Yeah. Nash doesn't notice the tag, so Giant knocks him down and batters him as the Let's Go Wolfpack chant resurfaces now that Sting is out. <laughs> Leg drop by Giant for two, and he goes up top and tries a splash. He does. But Nash rolls aside. I would not want to take that either. No. <laughs> it's like being on the ground the Hindenburg comes down at you. Yes. Rhodes sets the title belt on the apron as Hall drums on Nash's back to encourage him. Rhodes distracts Curtis as Nash goes for the jackknife powerbomb, but Hall suddenly gets in, takes the title belt, and hits Nash. <gasps> Sting looks on in pure shock as Giant covers for the three count and the win. Giant embraces Hall and Rhodes, as Dusty even discards the red leather jacket, and Hall drops his red and black shirt on Nash. Rhodes, Giant, and Hall try to get Sting to enter the ring too, but he stands there with a stunned expression. Make the right choice, Giant bellows, as we get a shot of Sting standing there on the apron, title belt loosely draped on his shoulder, thinking, and fade out. Thoughts on this one? Um, overall, it's a pretty good match. It's interesting because it feels like, especially with how much like outside stuff, like them yelling and really playing around with the, like, the Mark Curtis bit, feels like a almost like a house show match mm-hmm. and in many good ways i suppose it's it's weird because it's like a serious match but then you have stuff like giant telling uh sting to wave his arms around to get out of the bear hug <laughs> which he didn't try so it might have worked you don't know yeah for me it's pretty good um i like giant's energy is hard to <laughs> to really understate he's very excited yes in the match for a number of reasons sting obviously is sting so it's hard to really hear it against him he did a good job being face and peril, I thought, pretty mm-hmm, well. Absolutely. Ultimately, though, the match is less important than the storyline for me. Mm-hmm. It's a fairly basic match. They play it at about normal length you would get for a big house show main event. But then all the stories have happened with the turn, or I guess turns in this case. Um, and that almost overwhelms what happens in the rest of the match for me. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad match at all. If you watch it just on its own without part of the story, I think it's fine. But it never quite gets above that for me, I think. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think you compared the last year's main event also to a fun house show main yeah. event. And I think this has a very similar feel. Yeah. Where it's like, we've got these big personalities in the ring, mm-hmm. and we're just going to let them go at it and also be big personalities at each other. Right. Which is not a bad thing. You yeah. know, that, that works. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It doesn't feel epic. Yeah, exactly. And and maybe it should with this one, yeah. because there's kind of some important stuff happening around it. Yeah. But at the same time, it's hard to say that you shouldn't just do a fun match, because it is a fun match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I thought the character work here was exceptional, and the questions that hang over the match are really interesting. Will Sting join the NWO, and what was going on with, with Hall's super late arrival? Giant and Hall, I think, are the standouts from a personality standpoint yeah, in this one. For sure. They are entertainingly sniping at each other repeatedly, and that ends up making good sense because they're actually just having fun yeah, yeah. as they you know, yeah. build up to turning on Nash. Right. Nicely, Giant never actually fights Hall, as the one time that they're oh. facing off, Hall tags Nash in almost immediately. That's true. All they do is mock each other's monster walls. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. But it looks legit. Like, it still looks like, oh, yeah. we're angry at each other, but, oh, I want to challenge this guy. You yeah. Know? And they mentioned on commentary, there's a bit earlier in the year where Kevin Nash tries his powerbomb on a Giant, and famously it goes horribly yes. wrong. Oh, my gosh. So, teasing that is a big thing, and obviously, it makes sense that, like, yeah, let's get these guys fighting again. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree with you. Sting puts on a terrific show as Face in Peril, which makes the crowd super conflicted. Yeah. They clearly like the Wolfpack, but they do not want to steer against Sting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've already mentioned I love that dive for his final tag. Mm. Just the absolute precision of them all getting in exactly the right position at exactly the right moment to let him barely brush his fingers yeah. against Giant yeah. is amazing. That's one odd bit uh, to your point on that. It's when Nash and Giant are fighting. Giant knocks down Nash, does like a taunt, I think towards, probably towards Hall, and then goes for an elbow drop and actually hits it. I was like, oh. <laughs> like, you, you expected, like, here's like my big delay taunt, and it's time to recover, and then he mm-hmm. moves, but he doesn't move. It's like, oh, okay, I guess he's going to stay there for that. The swerve at the end is interesting, and I actually think I like it. It's an intriguing ending, and it makes things more personal for Nash instead of just a power struggle. Yeah. Like, to this point, it's just been two guys with a greed for power trying to be part of separate factions. Yes. But now it's become, oh, wait, my friend betrayed me. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that helps. And honestly, like Nash, for all his good points, and this can sometimes be a good point, but sometimes can't be, tends to have an easygoing kind yes. of feel where he, he never quite seems like he's taking everything yeah. seriously that gives him kind of his cool heel persona that yeah. people enjoy watching mm-hmm. but also it can sometimes deaden a match yeah so i think having him now have something that gives him a reason to get personally invested in a storyline yeah is rather cool yeah because we not for the show but we've seen a couple of the nash hall matches separately mm-hmm. there's definitely a different intensity you get from that yeah that's an interesting place to take his character, I think, where you finally give him a reason to care. Yeah, I see that. And Sting's reaction to that is amazing. He has this, like, absolute shocked, speechless reaction on his face, which you don't generally see from Sting, period. Yeah. But definitely not from Crow Sting, mm-hmm. where he's been the, the dark, brooding Avenger kind of character. But to just see him, like, it's like watching Batman look just, like, amazingly stunned and... yeah seeing something that was completely unexpected. Yeah. Which, again, Batman and Unexpected don't go together. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you almost need, the, like, a freeze frame and the Ron Howard narration go, that didn't go how expected. <laughs> yes. To properly paint the picture of it, Sting's expression is the same as the one dude in the crowd at WrestleMania, what is it, 30? Mm-hmm. Where Undertaker's streak is broken. Yeah. The, the one dude in the crowd just has the <gasps> expression on <Yeah>. his face. <laughs> I will say there's a sort of fitting full circle nature to this match as well. Because if you go back to when Hall and Nash won the titles, they won him off the Steiner brothers when Scott Steiner betrayed his brother. There you go. And Nash loses the title when Hall betrays him. Yeah, so I thought it was a fun match with a screwy but interesting ending. Yeah. It's kind of a nice theme on this show, actually, that we've had a number of interference spots, but generally 
not in ways that messed up the ending of a match. Yeah. That, that's been they're, they're important to the match, but they don't decide the match. Mm-hmm. And even and this one actually does decide the match, but I think is so full of storyline potential that you don't mind it at all. Yeah, I can see that. So obviously the storyline at this point is what will happen with Sting. Yes. So they wait till the very end of that first hour Nitro to have Sting make a decision for the NVO. He comes out. He gets happy on the aisle when Giant comes out to beat him. Giant off from the shirt. Sting, being the smartest man in the world, spits in the giant and slowly walks away from him. <laughs> Whereupon he's immediately beaten up by the giant. Uh, you can you can say a lot of things about Sting, but recognition of consequences is not really in his mindset. Yeah. This would have been okay if he's standing at the ramp and they're in the ring, but he's right next to the giant when he does this. <laughs> he's so dumb. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, Luger, uh, between these shows, joins the Wolfpack. He's trying to recruit Sting now. And ultimately, it uh, it works. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things that just should never have happened. Yes. I I would accept Sting not being part of NWO Wolfpack, but working with them, specifically with Luger. Yeah. Because he's friends with Luger. You could go back to 96 Luger, mm-hmm. where Sting's like, I'm working with you, but I'm also trying to convince you to change yeah. your ways. And actually, it, kind of work, it could really work because... At this point, we have Bret Hart, who's a heel, but not actually part of the individual Hollywood. Right. You could have Sting, the face, not part of... Yeah. Yeah, Sting actually being part of the NWO just doesn't work. No. Sting's entire modus operandi and and, and entire reason for being for the past, like, uh, about two years at this point... Yeah. ...has been defeat the NWO. Yeah. That they are a cancer on the wrestling business and must be eliminated... Yeah. And now he's joining a faction of it. And as you pointed out, it's not like the NWO Wolfpack are actually like 100% good guys. No. They're the more sympathetic, but mm-hmm. still probably bad guys. Yeah. It's just that they're the bad guys that have been betrayed by yes. the other bad guys. Exactly, yeah. It gives them a little more sympathy that it happens to have been a betrayal, not just of a business relationship, but an actual friendship. Yes. It still is just not something that should ever have happened yeah. to have Sting agree with them so much that he's willing to wear the shirt and change his face paint color. Mm, yeah, true. I think the the Sting and the NWO storyline to this point has has been some good intrigue, mm-hmm. but really it should never have worked out as Sting joins either faction of the NWO. Yeah. Obviously, with that in mind, there's still a conflict, obviously. Now, tag champions are two different factions of the yes. group. So that comes ahead of the Great American Bash with a singles match between Sting and the Giant. Whoever wins gets control of the titles. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know how many other ways you resolve that storyline, and that's, I guess, okay-ish. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's it's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to do the whole Hollywood versus Wolfpack thing, just have it actually be Sting and, say, Kevin Nash, who they're kind of the pairing they put together a lot at this point. Right. Have them challenge the Giant and... And Scott Hall. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you could argue the titles are disputed because each side has a claim to it. The winner gets the full claim of it. Yeah. Rather than making it a singles match, I think actually having them be with their prospective partners in that match would, would help. Yeah. Yeah. Because if they're not part of a group, you go, okay, who's the intrigue is, who's he going to pick as his partner? But if they're both part of the group, you know they're going to pick someone from the NWO. Yeah. So, lose that aspect. We just fade to black right on that shot of Sting, so Slambury 98 is done. So, overall thoughts on Slambury 1998. 
overall, it's a pretty strong show. Uh, they do a good balance of having like the big payoff to matches and storylines, like with Malenko and Jericho, mm-hmm. while continuing storylines past point you think they're going to, like with Dragon and Guerrero, and obviously building the long-term story with the whole Sting, Giant, Hall, Nash thing. It's definitely a show where there's a lot of good matches on it, so it's neat. if you're just recommending it for, hey, watch these matches, then it's a good show for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some confusion, and there's if you would cut the whole Vince McMahon stuff, that'd been a lot better. But yes, <laughs> overall, it's a pretty strong show. I felt pretty good about this one. It doesn't feel quite as much a home run as the prior year in terms of matches. Mm-hmm. That one just had a ton of one long and two really really good matches. Great. Um, where this one definitely has some has good ones, but mm-hmm. not quite as as notably good. Sure. But it is somewhat stronger from a storyline perspective, with some absolutely huge moments. We've got Dean Malenko's surprise return to beat Jericho, mm-hmm. the decimation of the flock, Chavo's beat down a dragon, Hall's turn on Nash, and the choice Sting's going to make, all being quite standout moments. Sure. I know that WCW doesn't necessarily continue all of these things well, but in the moment they're all terrific, and they captured my attention quite nicely. The flat-out stupidity of the Bischoff versus McMahon non-match and the unbelievable amount of time dedicated to building to it when it blatantly won't happen do hurt the show, however. Yes. Still, of the nine matches that actually happen on the show, I would say six are good, with the rest at worst totally acceptable. Even Luger versus Adams was perfectly fine. It was just short and simple enough I probably would have put it on TV instead of a pay-per-view. Agreed. This is, again, a show with some very good match content. It just has a few slowdowns along the way. There's not much promo content tonight, but what we get is generally really good. Jericho and Saturn both do exceptionally well. I do feel like we really miss something not having promos for the main event, though. Yeah, right? I would probably have Sting refuse to talk to maintain the intrigue, but it would have been good to hear from Giant, Nash, and Dusty. I could have also done with promos from Hart, Savage, and Piper, and as we mentioned earlier, the Guerreros. Agreed. The commentary team did well, though it's depressing to see Dusty on the show, but not on the desk during the Yeah, I can see that. I feel like I'm so close to my favorite team, but being robbed of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tanae definitely works better with the Tony and Heenan team now than in his early appearances, but it still feels like he and Tony kind of duplicate each other's role. Yeah, but... Still, they have some good discussions over the course of the show, and while there's a few flubs on commentary tonight, overall, they work. Slambury 1998 feels like a bigger or more important show than the prior year, but isn't quite as strong from a match standpoint, and has a few more notable flaws in its construction. Generally good performances bring out the personalities of the wrestlers and the important moments of storylines, but at the same time, some of the cracks are starting to show. Mm -hmm. Even if the screwy finishes and interference tonight were all generally good, there's a lot of those spots. Yeah. It's a sign of things to come. Mm Mm-hmm. WCW is still going strong at this point, but the misuse and overuse of the things that made this night effective, the big surprises, twists, and the wild anything-can-happen moments, are going to contribute to their fall. Yeah, for sure. Still, I can't hold the future against this show, and Mm -hmm. it's a fun watch and an easy recommendation. Just uh, fast-forward through the Bischoff build. Agreed. Time for our match of the night and MVP. So, Al, your match of the night. All right. So, as I mentioned, that's a pretty strong show for matches. Mm-hmm. For contention for match of the night, uh, Dragon Guerrero is a pretty easy pick. Um, you have the opening match, that was really strong. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, the Malenko-Jericho match, even, mm-hmm. even with the brawling side for me, 
is a really is a neat pick. DP and Raven is definitely the fun, chaotic craziness. Yep. I think works on this show because it's the only match like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which is good. I think for me, I have to go with the match that hooked you the most as far as in-ring action and being least affected by, as you mentioned, the constant interference. As minor as you, it is, it's, it's, it's minor but persistent, like you said. So I think for me, I'm going with the Benoit Finley match. Okay. Yeah, that was a, a very, very strong opener. One of, one of the better openers we've seen. Absolutely. I liked it from the context of Finley proving himself as well that yes. he's uh, showing the crowd that apparently did not give a crap about him yeah. uh, going going in that he can wrestle and wrestle really well. Yeah, they act like on Nitro when he wins it that it's like the uh, biggest upset in wrestling history or something, which is kind of crazy. Like he's, he's Fit Finley. He's a very experienced performer. Exactly. He's been with your company for years. Yeah, it's, it's a weird, weird call. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, it all came down to Malenko versus Jericho or Guerrero versus Dragon. Okay. And I'm going to go with Malenko versus Jericho. Okay. Both are exceptional in-ring matches, and Guerrero versus Dragon is longer and a bit more complex. I think, actually, if I was going off of just the action, that's a better match. Sure. But the sheer intensity and emotion in Malenko versus Jericho pushes it to the top. It's the match I'm going to remember from tonight the most, and his story is going to stick with me, so it has to be my match of the night. Sure. MVP? Um, there's a few good uh, picks going the quickly through my list. Obviously, um, either Benoit and Finley both do really strong in their match. Mm-hmm. Benoit doesn't get a lot of character stuff. Um, you Most you really get, other than normal intensity, is him being sort of indignant at um, Booker T. Jericho's um, promos where he's leading people at the ring is really good. Maleko getting a like the biggest pop of his career so credit for that, for sure. And, and throwing himself into it from an emotional standpoint, yeah. which is very rare for Malenko. That's true, yeah. I was leaning a lot towards DDP. I thought his little subtle parts of the match, like he's talking about his, him being sort of bow-legged, trying to get up, mm-hmm. barely making the night count, I think that was really good. Yep. Uh, and it, even little things, like, again, Giant's energy, I think he, he's pretty infectious. Savage and Hart both have really good character moments, Ian Piper. It's one of those shows where it's good that it's actually hard to pick. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I even, I'm even, just to show you, I am going off of my written pick. Um, I've sort of swayed myself and or you swayed me. <laughs> Which is a kind of good the show. You can go back and forth so many times. I might change mine later, but for me, the total package of his match performance and just being a true heel, I'm going with Eddie Guerrero. Okay. Yeah, Guerrero does a, a real standout heel performance tonight. Through the match and afterward. The ending bit, I thought yeah. was really good. Oh, that yeah. The, the smug grin he gets. Yes. As as that really sells as they're leaving, it, that's the best. Yeah, yeah it's, it's great. For me, again, I go back to my most memorable moment sure. on the show. So it it's between Chris Jericho and Dean Malenko. Sure, for their involvement in by far the most emotional bit on the night. Yeah, I've been going back and forth. I wrote one, and <laughs> yeah, I think I'm still going to go with it. I will go with Jericho. I thought so. I think they're even in the actual match. Malenko's sheer intensity and unexpected emotion are matched perfectly by Jericho's constant fear, shock, and disarray. Yeah. But Jericho's great promo work all the way up to the match and his absolute gold segment of calling the re-entrances of his challengers pushed him just the tiniest touch ahead on this one. I will say on the, on the follow-up Nitro, because it's so short, he didn't get a match, but they show, it's supposed to be after the show he's in the back throwing a tantrum and throwing trash around and like <laughs> on his knees crying and screaming 
I mean, that's what's nice with Jericho is he is, has always been nice with him, I think, is he's willing to play the, the cocky heel and the arrogant heel and all, and all, but he's also willing to be humiliated. Yes, exactly. And like, and show the effects of that on him. Exactly. So he'll do things like, you know, the, like you said, throwing trash around and then the, him willing to show absolute petrified fear of yeah. Dean Malenko when he first comes out there to the extent that it feels like he can't even think what he should do to him after he gets him down. Yeah. He's like, like sh- should, should, I, should I leave now that I've got Tam? He actually gets halfway out the ropes yeah. before he's like, oh, wait, he's down. I should probably try something. Yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> No, he definitely did a good job, the show. Yeah. Before. Yeah, Eddie's also a strong pick and, and was definitely my consideration as well. I just was like, this is the thing that's going to stick with me. Jericho and Dean are both a huge part of that, and Jericho just, that added little touch oh, yeah. to his character really Absolutely. works. And that wraps up our review of Slambury 1998. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be, will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Slamboree's as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, Give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Slambury 99. Watch rules and bones shattered in the comfort of your own home. Wait, wait, in my home? Is WCW sending someone to my house to beat up my friends on board game night? Uh-oh. Oh, crap. Duck for cover, Al. Jeez. <laughs> This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Versus Chris Jericho for Jericho's WCW World... Whoops, I put World Heavyweight Championship in my notes. That's clearly not right. World Cruiserweight Championship. (laughs) Clearly just went on autopilot there. Yeah.